Welcome to Trinity Radio, coming in a little hot. And I am glad that you all are here. This is going to be super exciting because we have a fabulous debate here today. And we have two of my favorite human beings who are going to be debating this. And that is Chris, the debate date, as I call him, (laughs) and Kevin O'Connor, who I know because we are friends on YouTube and we have had Uh, some great interactions during live streams and things like that. So I'm very excited about this debate. The debate proposition that Kevin will be defending uh, is there is not sufficient reason to justify belief in the God of Christian theism. One more time, there is not sufficient reason to justify belief in the God of Christian theism. That's your chance, atheist, to clip me out saying that so that you can say, see, they're back and it's it. Um, but, uh, but we're going to have a great debate here and let me go ahead and bring the guys in. So these are again, two of my favorite people, especially favorite people on the internet. And, uh, I'm looking forward to a great exchange, great interaction. I just told them both that I've prayed for both of them. Um, obviously as a Christian, I have my desires about how the debate goes, but I like both of these guys and I think they like each other. This is going to be fun. Chris is one of our adjunct professors at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. He's also uh, the face most recognizable from uh, Rethinking Hell. We encourage you to check out Rethinking Hell. He also has his own YouTube channel linked in the description, Theopologetics. And then on the other side of the screen, we have Kevin. And Kevin, honestly, I'm going to let you tell a little bit about yourself. Um, I just know that's Kevin, and he's super smart from the interactions I've had with him. 
And so, Kevin, let us know a little bit more about you. Sure. Uh, in a sentence, um, I'm somebody who grew up rad trad Catholic, which is like a very kind of bizarre and obscure sect within Catholicism. Um, I I don't love some things about the way that I grew up. Um, and so my channel is kind of all about uh, discussing how I grew up and why we might not want to make some of the same mistakes that I think my community has historically made. All right. And you have some people here that are uh, cheering you on as well. So hey, that's Jason. pretty cool. Yeah. So, all right. Well, so the way that we are going to move forward with this debate is we're going to have 20 minute opening statements from both men, and then we're going to move on to 10 minute rebuttals and then a whole hour of open conversation after which we'll get to your questions. I'll remind you when those questions are coming and uh, I'll try to save them as I see them as we're moving along. And so, um, Chris, I let Kevin say a few words, but uh, is there anything you would like to say before we begin about yourself or your ministry? No, I think you covered it. Um, I'll just add my personal website because it's sort of like a hub at which um, people can access the work I do for Rethinking Hell, for The Apologetics, the books and journal articles that I've published. And that website is chrisdate.info. Um, there is a uh, uh, squatter, a, a web domain squatter who has chrisdate.com and wants to charge me an exorbitant fee to get it. So chrisdate.info don't go to Chris and when Date. you pay that fee i will send it right over to you that's that's how okay. that works. <laughs> that's right, exactly. that's right. all right well guys let's go ahead and jump into this thing with i suppose um we'll take Ke kevin's gonna start i suppose uh opening statements in defense of the proposition so we'll move over to kevin's screen now we'll be back to you later chris and uh kevin uh, we'll, we'll, uh, let's see. I thought I got rid of that thing. Let's see here. A uh, little bit of tech problems here, folks. And Kevin, I'm going to start your timer now. Hi everyone. I am so excited to be here with all of you today. Let's do the thank yous before I put everyone to sleep. A big thank you to Braxton, uh, Jonathan Pritchett, uh, and the entire Trinity radio team for hosting. And an Aww. equally big thank you to Chris for agreeing to do this debate. I may be biased more on bias later. That is called foreshadowing. But I think that Chris and I have put together a really unique debate for you tonight. Yes, the, the title is very wordy, but I think it's worth it. How often have you witnessed the classic burden of proof song and dance where the non-Christian in the debate does nothing except for poke holes in the Christian's argument or perhaps simply insists that the arguments that the Christian presents are good but not good enough to rise to the occasion and convince me that your arguments are correct? We've probably seen that song and dance many, many times, and some of us may have performed that song and dance before. I know I have. But tonight, Chris and I are not performing that same old song and dance. We formatted the debate tonight in such a way that the agnostic bears the burden of proof. I, the agnostic, am affirming that there is not sufficient reason to justify belief in the God of Christian theism. You heard that right. The agnostic actually has to grow a backbone and say something with his chest. Oh dear, I seem to have placed myself in a really different difficult position. Oh, well, now at least I have something to fall back on when I lose this debate tonight. Instead of blaming it on Chris's, on, on Chris's crushing intellect, his winning personality, or even his devilishly good looks, I can instead blame it on my own eagerness to bite off more than I can chew. Well, 
I'm here tonight anyway, right? So let's see what I can do. Tonight, I'm going to make three positive arguments for agnosticism, specifically about the Christian God. First, I will present the argument from empiricism. Then I will present an argument from incomprehensibility. And then I'll end with an argument from bias. I'm presenting them in the order by which I will spend time on them. And this is also the order by which I think that they are important. So that is to say, I think that, so I'll, I'll spend the most time on the argument from empiricism because I think that that argument is most important. And I'll spend the least amount of time on the argument from bias because I think that that's the least important and the argument from incomprehensibility falls between the two. All right, let's start with the argument from empiricism. Having a solid understanding of what empiricism is will probably help me in, in making an argument from empiricism. So let's take a moment to define the term. I actually have two definitions on the slide now. One is from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, the SEP for you philosophy geeks out there. And the other one is from Wikipedia, which is for the common folk like me out there. Um, the two are fairly similar. This SEP says that empiricism is the idea that we have no source of knowledge other than experience. Um, in other words, the only way to have sufficient reason to believe something is if you have experience of that thing. Wikipedia is similar but softer. Wikipedia says that empiricism is the view that holds that justified knowledge comes only or primarily from experience. In common conversation, I generally use the Wikipedia article definition, but I can't do that tonight. I'll be working with the SEP definition. You'll see why on the next slide. Here's how the argument goes. Premise one. Empiricism is the only method to obtain justified belief. Premise two, the Christian God's existence cannot be empirically verified. Therefore, the conclusion is that justified belief in the Christian God is simply not possible. That's a huge statement, right? And a bold one at that. I expect that premise one is going to be hugely controversial. I actually don't expect premise two to be that controversial. And I don't expect the validity of my syllogism to come into question so much. Um, but I do actually think that premise two is perhaps more impactful than people might think at first. I am getting ahead of myself. Um, let's just quickly take a look. And you'll notice that the conclusion doesn't actually follow from the Wikipedia article definition, but it does follow from the SEP definition. So I'll be using the SEP definition in my syllogism tonight. Okay. Notice that I'll be couching this term. Um, so there's, there's justification and then there's unjustified belief. That's going to come in uh, a little bit later. For now, though, let's focus on premise one. So premise one states that empiricism is the only method to obtain justified true belief. Um, why should we believe this? It's complicated, but for now, let's start with my favorite informal fallacy and appeal to authority. There's a super useful survey from Phil Papers called the Phil Papers Survey, where Phil Papers asks a whole bunch of PhD philosophers questions, and then it collects the data. One such question from the most recent survey from 2020 was rationalism versus empiricism. Without getting into the weeds, you can just think about rationalism as being not empiricism. Take a look at the results. By a decent margin, empiricism beats rationalism, 43.9% to 33.5%, meaning that empiricism is 31% higher than rationalism. That means 43.9 over 33.5 is 31% higher. So um, interestingly, the most common response in that non-negligible non percentage of alternate views was pragmatism, which is considered like empiricism adjacent. In fact, pragmatism is actually an entry under empiricism in the Wikipedia article. 
You'll note that idealism is not popular at all, being the fourth most common among the alternate views. Um, so I think that the vast majority of those alternate views go towards empiricism. Anyway, this is kind of besides the point, right? An appeal to authority only gets us so far. And that's true. But in the interest of time, I'm not going to dwell on this for too long, but I will be addressing further critiques of my premise one in the, the open dialogue. At least I, I expect I will be, probably. Um, in an attempt to kind of kickstart the conversation, I am anticipating a couple of objections here. One popular objection to empiricism is the move where you say, well, like, Kevin, don't you believe that your wife loves you and you can't prove that empirically? And to that, I say, I actually do think that I can prove that empirically, kind of, since I'm a nominalist and a reductionist about love and other abstracta. Okay, we're not going to address what any of that means right now. We'll get into that more later. Another common injection is just the intuition objection to empiricism. Again, in the interest of time, I'm moving on, but I'll be super happy to talk about all of this in depth later on in the debate. Same thing with the scientism objection. I'm going to use one word now, pragmatism, in anticipation of the scientism objection. But again, uh, we'll, we'll touch on that more later on tonight. Now let's actually defend premise two. And actually, I don't expect a ton of pushback here, so much so that I'm actually going to take a break right now. I'm going to let some theists defend my point for me. Let's start with this article. Does Answers in Genesis sound familiar? If any of you grew up young earth creationists like I did, Answers in Genesis should sound pretty familiar. This article is written by a Matthew Diorazi, um, but the, the president of Answers in Genesis is this guy, Ken Ham. Um, I imagine that nothing gets posted to the Answers in Genesis website if Ken Ham wouldn't approve it. And let's take a look at what this blog post says. So what about empirical evidence for God? Like I said, there isn't any. Ah, so Ken Ham supports premise two of my syllogism. Excellent. But I have a feeling that a non-negligible percentage of the audience is looking at me and saying, come on, Kevin, Ken Ham, really? Why don't you pick on some theists who are a little bit more representative of mainstream Christianity? Okay, fair enough. Let's listen to one of my favorite theists, the king of lazy apologetics, Eric Hernandez. In the YouTube short on the screen here, and yes, I know it was a TikTok first, but gosh darn it, I am 27, and that makes me too old for TikTok. Um, in that short... Eric says, atheists say, give me scientific evidence for God. And I say, why would I want to do a silly thing like that? God, if he exists, is a non-physical entity. Science is a wonderful tool, but a tool that is limited to the physical. You cannot use science, which is limited to the physical, to study the non-physical. That is a category error. Eric then goes on to use an analogy like this. Imagine you have a friend who says, hey, I just walked up and down this whole beach with a metal, metal detector and I didn't find any plastic at all. Found lots of metal, but no plastic. Therefore, there's no plastic on this beach. Eric would be right to chastise our friend here and tell them that the metal detector is simply not an adequate tool for finding plastic. Likewise, Eric agrees. Empiricism is simply the wrong tool for finding God. Okay, one more theist to do the heavy lifting for me before my break ends. Ken Ham and Eric are both apologists, so let's find a Christian philosopher as well. I'm a huge fan of Patrick Flynn and his show, Philosophy for the People. It's a great show for the people, for the folk, the Vulgate, uh, the people like me. And I think that's partially the case because, I mean, this is Pat. Just look at him. He's clearly a man for the people, for sure, a red-blooded American. I would vote for Pat. Pat for president. Anyway, Pat makes this argument here. Take a look at this text that I circled in red. God is not an empirical notion. We can neither observe God nor apprehend God's essence in any other way. Okay, so if we have premise two being supported by pretty much all of these theists here, and then if we accept my premise one, then the conclusion follows.
The second argument that I will be using in my opening statement is an argument from incomprehensibility. Let's quickly review the argument from incomprehensibility. Premise one, justified belief in an incomprehensible truth is not possible. Premise two, the existence of the Christian God would be incomprehensible. Conclusion, justified belief in the Christian God is impossible. Again, I don't expect the validity of this syllogism to come into question, but I will spend a few minutes defending the soundness of the premises. Defending premise one should be fairly straightforward. Frankly, I consider this to be tautologically true. A tautology is when you say the same thing twice, just using different words. So that which is incomprehensible cannot be comprehended. And part of having justified belief is comprehending the truth of that belief. So premise one, I'll argue, is tautologically true. To demonstrate the truth of this claim, though, let's consider two scenarios. First, consider this common scenario. A 12-year-old claims to be in love with her boyfriend. Do you believe her? You probably don't. You might say something like, she doesn't even know what love is. That is to say that the 12-year-old is not justified in her claim that she is in love since she cannot comprehend what love is. Second, consider an excuse that I could give for being late to a certain function. And a printer got into my flarem rod. Audience, I ask you, can you have justified belief that Anna Frinter really did get into my flarem rod? You probably don't even know how Anna Frinter could get into my flarem rod, right? So if the, the mechanism by which the affrinter got into my flarem rod is not comprehended by you, you cannot be justified in believing that that was indeed the case in what made me late. Okay, hopefully that's enough on premise one. Now let's move on to premise two. Premise two states that the existence of the Christian God would be incomprehensible, even if true. I'm getting tuckered out. Again, I get tired easily. So I'm going to let another theist defend premise two for me, just like I did in premise two of the argument from empiricism. Here's a quote. Consider infinity. We know that infinities exist, argues this theist, because like, you know, what's the highest number? Name any, I'll only a higher one, rinse and repeat, we'll go forever. Okay, that is the infinity. So, so infinities do exist, right? Well, um, is infinity even or odd? We don't know, really, since like infinity is the only number where infinity plus one is still infinity. And any even number plus one is an odd number. So somehow infinity is both even and odd? That shouldn't be possible. Okay, maybe we just need to say something like this. We know that infinity exists, but we are ignorant about its nature. The theist in question here goes on to say that this makes sense because we can know the existence and the nature of the finite because we are finite and we have extension. Um, we know the existence of the infinite, but we are ignorant of its nature because the infinite has extension like us, but not limits like us but we know neither the existence nor the nature of God because he has neither extension nor limits. This, for the Catholics out there, this might sound like an argument from like Thomas Aquinas or something. It's not. But if it's not Aquinas, what kind of Christian argues that a Christian cannot possibly know that God even exists? And I'll tell you, it's a Christian who kind of only believes for pragmatic reasons. This guy, Blaise Pascal, Blaise Pascal argued that nobody can be justified in believing in God, 
but we should all believe in God anyway for pragmatic reasons. So Pascal might actually like agree with my like entire presentation and him and I could then just like, you know, high five each other and then move on to the pragmatic side of the conversation. Then Pascal would bring up Pascal's wager and, you know, him and I can kind of take it from there. But the, the debate tonight is not about whether or not we should take Pascal's wager. It's kind of like a step before that. It's, it's, is justified belief in the Christian God possible? And Pascal kind of agrees with me, it seems, that it's, it's not. To tie a knot in this argument from incomprehensibility, it seems to me like someone would either need to argue that it is possible to be justified in believing something that they do not comprehend, or they would need to argue that they do comprehend God. If a person takes the former, I would then just insist that I am justified in believing that the effrinter getting jammed in my flarum rod really is what caused me to lose tonight's debate. And if they take the latter, and if they really do claim to comprehend God, then I would like to be your disciple, please and thank you. Note, none of this means that unjustified belief is impossible. One might argue, like Pascal does, that an unjustified belief in the existence of the Christian God is possible and, in fact, prudent. Who cares about justification? As long as it's pragmatic, I'm going to believe it anyway. I'm happy to discuss this later on tonight. And in fact, I'm going to discuss it again later on tonight because this kind of ties back into the scientism conversation. Um, but I do just want to point out that this debate tonight is about justified belief. It's not about unjustified belief. So Pascal's wager shouldn't really factor too much into the equation in tonight's debate. Lastly, we have uh, the argument from bias. The argument from bias might be better titled the argument from strong bias, because some degree of bias is inescapable? Are we to disbelieve every claim that might have ever been made by somebody with the slightest bit of bias? And we'd be hard solipsists at that point. This argument is different from the other two that I've made in the sense that it does not conclude that knowledge of the existence of the Christian God is impossible. Instead, it just offers a reason why you might want to consider the credence that you place in the existence of the Christian God and maybe lower it. This is definitely the weakest argument that I'm presenting today. And so I'm going to be spending the least amount of time on it. Also, I am kind of running out of time. So there is that small detail too. Now in premise one, I did smuggle an invisible if into that premise. I have not solved the is-ought problem. And so if I were speaking more accurately, I shouldn't prescribe an ought without an if. I will rephrase premise one as, if I care about my beliefs being accurate, then the presence of strong bias ought to lower my credence in the truthfulness of that claim. Okay. After I kind of fix that is-ought problem, I consider this to be kind of tautologically true. Uh, bias, according to the National Institute of Standards and Technology, the NIST, um, is the difference between the average of measurements made on the same object and its true value. Of course, this is the scientific definition of bias, not the colloquial definition of bias that you may have assumed I was talking about from the syllogism alone. But hey, I am an engineer by education, so it shouldn't be surprising to anybody that I'm referring to this st the statistical definition of bias rather than the colloquial definition. Moving on to premise two then, I suppose I need to provide data to support my claim that there is actually bias in the belief of the Christian God. Luckily for me, there's a field called cognition of religion that has been studied for many decades already, so I don't need to do any guesswork here. There's a fairly common expression among engineers, in God we trust, all others must have data. It's used in scenarios where one engineer might say, I don't think we need to gather more data, we already know what the answer is. And then the other engineer might say, in God we trust, all others must bring data. 
as a way of saying, no, no, we do need, we do need more data. On the left, you can see perhaps the most famous paper in the field of cognition of religion called Geography and Religion, Trends and Prospects. This paper demonstrated that geography is an easy and powerful indicator of religious belief. That is to say, if you live in Kentucky, where I live, if you just picked out any random person, um, the chance that they believed in the Christian God would actually be greater than 75% chance of, of being correct. If I knew nothing about a person except that they lived their whole life in Iraq, I would have a 98% chance in being correct if I guessed that they did not believe in the God of Christian theism. This geographic bias seems kind of weird if we assume that there was some kind of objective stance-independent way to verify the existence of the Christian God. It seems a lot more likely under the worldview that there is no stance-independent objective way to verify the God of Christian theism. Geography isn't the only factor that correlates with uh, the, the God belief. Um, the paper in the middle, Cognitive Bias, explains uh, religion, religious belief, paranormal belief, and belief in life's purpose, published in the Journal of Cognition in 2013, says that belief in God is actually biased towards people's beliefs in other things, such as anthropomorphism, teleology, dualism, and others. I do like to try to be fair. So the paper on the right-hand side of the screen actually challenges the idea that uh, something called religious representation predicts um, the God belief. Um, and I don't have time to get into that paper now, but I do like to be fair. And so that I threw that paper in there to demonstrate what, you know, what isn't a bias. So that brings me to the closing of my opening. Um, to close out my opening statement, I would just like to present how I see the data. For me, this is just me personally, I see the argument from empiricism taking up like 70% of the space here. So like if, if I became convinced that like you don't need empiricism to have justified belief, that would do way more lifting for me than the other two arguments being like thrown out combined. Again, this is just me personally. Maybe I'm weird. I don't know. Um, but But that's it for me. Um, thank you, everybody. I hope that this, this opening served you well. And I really look forward to seeing what Chris is about to serve up. Thanks, everybody. All right. Well, that was fantastic. We'll go right into Chris now for his opening statement. Chris, have at it. All righty. Um, so it's customary in debates like these to um, begin by issuing some opening thanks. And so that I will do beginning with Braxton, not only for setting up and hosting this debate, but also for um, his friendship, which continues to deepen almost every day, it seems to me. And also for the privilege uh, to be a colleague of Braxton's at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. Thank you, so Brandon. thank you for all of that, Braxton. Also, I want to thank Kevin, um, not only for uh, participating, um, but also for forgiving my flakiness. Um, he doesn't think it's a big deal, but I do. I had to reschedule this debate two times because of tumult in my life, in my home life and work life. Um, and moreover, we had planned from the very beginning that a week or two in advance of the debate, we would trade opening statements so that our rebuttals would be more meaningful to you, the audience. And I failed to do that because of the tumult that I mentioned a moment ago and the rescheduling of the debate. So he has uh, the gist of the arguments that I'm going to offer, but not all the details that I'll be offering. And, and that's, you know, mea culpa. So I think I'm thankful for, for his uh, for his forgiveness of my flakiness there. And then lastly, I want to thank everybody that's watching and listening. Uh, initially, I was going to say thanks for taking the time to let us help you think of this important topic. Uh, but having seen how um, short I trimmed my beard and mustache yesterday, I will instead thank you for your forgiveness for looking so un, uh, unkempt compared to my normal, much more healthfully bearded self. So 
A uh, few opening remarks about my burden as the negative, the one denying the debate thesis. And uh, Kevin helpfully touched on this, and um, he's made my burden very easy, it seems to me. Because firstly, uh, the, my burden in this debate is not to prove that there is sufficient reason to convince others of Christian belief. I don't have to prove whatsoever, to any extent, that you, the listener or, or viewer, ought to be persuaded by my case. Don't need to do that. I don't even need to prove that there that sufficient reason does in fact exist to justify Christian belief. That's not the role of the negative in a debate like this. Rather, it is Kevin who is making the positive claim. He is the one affirming that sufficient reason does not exist to justify belief in the God of Christian theism. So all I have to do is refute Kevin's case that sufficient reason does not exist. And that I intend to do in my rebuttal, but of course, uh, the rebuttal is comes after um, my opening. In fact, it comes after Kevin's own rebuttal to mine. So we'll get to that later. And in the meantime, I'll just offer three of what I consider to be many reasons that I think justify Christian belief. Uh, but first, a word on the debate thesis, the details of it. There is not sufficient reason to justify belief in the God of Christian theism. This is the critical part, or one of two critical parts of this thesis. See, belief justification concerns whether one believes well. That is, whether one has good reasons for belief. And this language of well and good is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the moral language that is used throughout the literature on this topic. Uh, you'll find statements of whether it's right to believe something, whether one should believe something, whether a belief is fitting or responsible or virtuous. And what all of this language implies is that justification of belief requires some kind of standard of measurement and or an authority to dictate what justifies belief. In fact, these are required all the more in order to gauge whether a belief has sufficient justification, whatever we might consider that to even be. Now, uh, Kevin already acknowledged he is a nominalist, and my understanding of nominalism is that it denies the genuine existence of universals and or abstract objects. And this is important because any standard of measurement for justifying belief is either, on the one hand, universal or abstract, or on the other hand, arbitrarily chosen or subjective, you know, subjectively preferable. Um, and so a nominalist simply cannot affirm today's debate thesis without qualification. And I'll remind you, the viewer, that our debate thesis is unqualified. What I mean by that is, it's, is it, the, the thesis is there is not sufficient evidence to justify belief in the God of Christian theism, period. If there were qualification like there is not sufficient reason to justify belief in the God of Christian theism, if we want to believe or if, if what justifies belief is that which makes a belief more likely or something like that, well, then we might have a more interesting conversation. But as it stands, I don't think that Kevin can possibly affirm our debate thesis. And so as far as I'm concerned, I've already won. Now, of course, I don't want to end there. I want to have a more meaningful conversation. So let me let me go further than merely um, uh, celebrating my victory. But first, I want to uh, observe that there are more than one, there are more, there are more types of reasons and evidences than just empirical evidence. Uh, 
Um, there are reasons that come from pure philosophy, um, the, the conclusions of logical thought without appealing to experience and observation. And this is, of course, going to come into play in our discussion on empiricism. There's evidence, there's arguments based on empirical observation, abduction, that is abductive reasoning or the appeal to the best explanation, inference to the best explanation, abduction from consistent observations of nature. Uh, and then there are similar abductive reasonings based on uh, reliable records of historical events and more. And there are all sorts of types of evidences and reasons. And so when a popular atheist um, repeats, there's no, you, you can't show me any evidence, what they typically mean is you can't provide me empirical evidence as if somehow that is the only kind of evidence that matters. Well, I think we'll discuss today whether or not that's the case. Now, I'm going to offer three reasons, one from each of these three categories as I have defined them, beginning with what I'm calling reason number one. That is reason number one that justifies belief in Christian theism. Reason itself is best grounded in Christian theism. Here's what I mean by that. Naturalism, the belief that all that exists is the physical world, the physical cosmos, naturalism entails the lack of that standard and authority that I talked about earlier that is required in order to render a belief unjustified. Any choice of standard, that is, uh, measure by which to determine whether a belief is justified, and any proposed authority that can dictate which of competing standards is the right one to use, is completely arbitrary and, and subjectively preferred, and therefore not obligatory, not binding. Now, a supernaturalistic atheism, something like a Platonism or something like it, um, might have a standard, but it doesn't have the kind of authority necessary to endorse one particular standard. So, for example, um, think about morality in Platonism. You know, Platonism says that there are indeed these abstract entities called virtues and these abstract objects called vices. Um, virtues are things like bravery, right, courage, whereas vices are things like uh, foolhardiness, you know, foolhardiness, whatever. Um, and one could argue, a Platonist could argue that the virtues really truly exist and they are the things that are most conducive to human flourishing. But what Platonism can't offer is an authority that can, that can dictate that the things that are most conducive to human flourishing are the good ones. So Platonism or any other kind of supernaturalistic atheism just lacks the, the authority, if not also the standard for endorse, for, for justifying belief. And so what that means is that on naturalism, every debate over whether a belief is justified just boils down to yeah, 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 right? The person who says my belief isn't justified is going to say, nah, -uh, it's not because I hold, I think this standard is what should be required. And here's the authority I appeal to. And the person who thinks his belief is justified is going to say, well, I reject that standard and your authority, and I instead choose this standard and this authority, and you have no, I have no reason for accepting your chosen standard and your chosen authority. So it's just yaha, uh back and forth. Now, theism, on the other hand, can entail both the standard and authority required to render a belief unjustified. And that's because a god or gods who designed human being, humanity, you know, purposed it, designed it with a particular purpose in mind, can dictate the standard and authoritatively endorse that standard, the standard of what, uh, how, how to measure whether a belief is justified. And so belief can be truly unjustified or justified, but only in some brand of theism. But of course, our, I mentioned earlier that our debate thesis has two critical components, not just the sufficient reason to justify belief, but also the God of Christian theism. So how would I argue for that belief being justified? Well, only Christianity affirms belief in a single ultimate transcendent creator who simultaneously also exists as a plurality. 
Um, what's ultimate in Christianity is the triune God, the God who is both one and many, neither his unity as the one nor his plurality as the three rules the proverbial roost. They're equally ultimate. But all other theisms are either Unitarian or polytheistic. It's ultimately either one or the many. Now, why does this matter? Well, arguably, the most pervasive philosophical problem throughout history has been the problem of the one and the many. Um, I'm still trying to wrap my head around even understanding the problem, let alone trying to answer it. But here's one of many ways to construe the problem. Imagine a human being, the, the development of a human being from conception to death. Throughout that 80, roughly, give or take, years of existence, that uh, of, of embodied existence, at least, if you're a dualist, um, over the course of the, that person's embodied lifetime, virtually every cell in his body has been replaced, uh, whether whether that replacing happens very quickly in the case of, say, skin cells, or it takes a very long time, as in the case of, of uh, 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 bones. Um, with the exception of neurons and lens cells, cells in, in the lenses of your eyes, all of those other cells are replaced multiple times over throughout your lifetime. And in the case of neurons and lens cells, no one could hardly begin to justify the claim that the identity of the human being co consists in one particular neuron among those many neurons or one particular lens cell among the many other cells that constitute the lens. So given these realities, how can you say that the baby and the old man that that baby grows into are in fact the same person? And yet we all, I think, know that they are, at least in one sense, even if they are not in another sense, namely that the matter comprising them has been entirely replaced or what have you. Now, reason, the process of logical thought, of logical thinking, trades on the ultimacy of both particulars, that is the many, and universals, that is the one. So take, for example, this famous syllogism. Uh, premise number one, all men are mortal. Premise number two, Socrates is a man. Conclusion, therefore, Socrates is mortal. This syllogism only works because of the existence of both particulars and universals. Men, the category of humankind, is the universal. It's the thing that universally, it's the universal about which we can predicate the truth that any instantiation of that universal is mortal. Likewise, or, or similarly, Socrates is the particular. He is one particular instantiation or example of the universal that is human. So the conclusion depends on the existence of particulars and universals, and I would argue that that is that logic is riddled with dependence on both on the ultimacy of both things. So Christian theism having or entailing ultimacy in both unity and plurality therefore best justifies reason itself, or so it seems to me. And so that's my first argument that reason itself is best grounded in Christian theism. My second reason is in the category of uh, abduction from observable, you know, from empirical observation. And here I might do much more common arguments like uh, the information um, present in DNA, or which universal human experience says comes from mind. Or I might appeal to things like the evident design in something like ATP synthase, which by all accounts is a machine in the wall of, our, of the mitochondria in our cells. But I don't want to do common arguments. I want to do something that I haven't really seen before and argue that Christian theism best explains the ultimacy of both unity and plurality that we observe in the cosmos. Here's what I mean by that. If I'm not mistaken, all of physical reality exhibits ultimacy in both unity and plurality at both the micro and macro levels. So at the micro, for example, we could talk about atoms. 
a, a single atom is one thing. It so truly is one thing that we can uh, put it on a on a, a chart of the elements, uh, table of elements. I mean, we can deter. We we know how an element is going to behave given what atoms constitute it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So an atom is one thing, and yet it is also many things. It is uh, protons and neutrons, which by the way, are in turn many things. Um, any given proton or neutron is three quarks. And no quark exists in isolation from at least from two others in a proton or a neutron. And electrons don't naturally exist in isolation either. We can unnaturally, artificially isolate an electron, but normally in, that, in nature, electrons only orbit nuclei, which again are composed of uh, protons and neutrons, which are themselves composed of quarks. So what that means is that at the micro level, the atom, the one, is ultimate. It, 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 is, it is irreducible in, in terms of its behavior with, other, uh, with atoms of other types and so forth. But it is also irreducibly many. Um, it is also ultimately many. It's many uh, subatomic particles, and it's also uh, many elementary particles. And this is also true at the macro level. It's easily, it's clear that there are distinct galaxies all throughout our universe. Uh, a distinct galaxy is a one. And yet every galaxy is itself equally a plurality of stars and other heavenly bodies and gas and dust and so forth. The many. You can't speak about a galaxy without also speaking about its or conceiving of its constituent parts and vice versa. So Throughout, and there are other examples from everything in between the, mac, the micro and the macro that, that events that, that uh, physical reality is ultimately both unity and plurality. Now, I would argue that we would expect creation to reflect its creator's nature in certain ways, being a product of that creator's thought and will. So what that means then is that the ultimacy of both unity and plurality in the cosmos, assuming there's a creator, and that's what some of my other arguments are about, suggests likewise of its creator. And only Christian theism of all worldviews out there entails creation by a creator who is simultaneously ultimate in both unity and plurality. So again, reason number two I'm offering is that Christian theism best explains the ultimacy of both unity and plurality in the cosmos. Reason number three, um, and here I'm going to turn to abduction from historical record. Um, and the more popular thing to do would probably be to argue from fulfilled prophecy or something like that in the Old Testament. But I'm going to actually appeal to a fulfilled prophecy that is often turned against Christianity by its critics, namely Jesus's prediction of Jerusalem's fall in his Olivet Discourse, which I think Christian theism best explains. So here's what I mean by this. In Jesus' lifetime, first of all, Judea and Rome were not in great conflict. Yes, there were small and frequent revolts like the one by Judas of Galilee in around 6 CE, but these small and frequent revolts were quickly uh, squashed by the Roman authorities and did not inspire great widespread Roman hostility. Jews in Judea, therefore, like citizens of other provinces of Rome, exercised a great degree of freedom and autonomy that, that was, in the case of Judea, tolerated well by many uh, or most Jews. It's not to say that they had no reservations whatsoever. They didn't like how they were um, unfaithfully taxed and other things. But by and large, they, they tolerated their, the, the degree of freedom and autonomy that they enjoyed under Roman rule. So there, there would have been no huge clash expected between Rome and Judea in uh, within a close proximity to Jesus's lifetime. 
Now, as for the second temple, this is this is the temple that Herod refurbished um, prior to the lifetime of Christ. And this second temple was massive, glorious, imposing, and awesome. It would have been a, a truly awe-inspiring sight. Moreover, first century Jews believed that God still indwelled the second temple, the one that Herod refurbished, even if not visibly. What I mean by that is they believed that the glory cloud of God visibly appeared within the Holy of Holies in Solomon, um, but they may not have believed that was the case with Solomon's temple, and yet, sorry, with the second temple, and yet they believed that God indwelt that temple. So, there would have, they would have had no reason to expect, and there is no evidence that anyone expected, the temple to be destroyed, certainly not anytime soon, and even more certainly not by its very benefactors, namely Rome. And yet, that's exactly what Jesus did. Both uh, All three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all record Jesus predicting the temple's destruction within a few decades. I won't substantiate that here and now, but in our discussion time, we can certainly discuss that if necessary. Um, this is relevant because Ignatius, and Clem, uh, Ignatius of Antioch and Clement of Rome, writing right around 100 CE or even slightly earlier, they both quote Matthew and Luke, which is evidence that those gospels are of much earlier origin. In order to quote uh, uh, Matthew and Luke, um, Ignatius and Clement co collectively would have had to have had enough time transpire between the time that those Gospels were written for those Gospels to have been transmitted, propagated, and gained authority. So we can push the writing of Matthew and Luke much earlier than 100 CE. And given the widespread acceptance of Mark and priority, which is the idea that Matthew and Luke both borrow from Mark, that means that Mark must have still been written even earlier, certainly before 70 CE. Now, the temple's destruction by Rome in 70 CE is one of the most attested events in history. And a second century tradition that is recorded a couple centuries later by uh, both Eusebius and Epiphanius, both independently, holds that Christian Jews fled the city of Jerusalem just prior to its destruction because they heeded Jesus' oracle. And none, all synoptic manuscripts, all the, given all the variations between the manuscripts, uh, manuscript traditions of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there is no relevant variation in this portion of those Gospels. Now, what are the likely, what are the plausible explanations for this? Well, ex eventu is not likely. That is to say that it was written after the event. At least Mark was clearly written before it's the temple's destruction. And the record of Jesus predicting that is found in all manuscript copies. A lucky guess isn't likely. No pious Jew would have guessed it. And the detail, uh, the detailed accuracy is too great to be guesswork. So divine revelation really is the most likely. In fact, Jesus attributed his knowledge of what was to come to his father. So the reason that number three that I offer for justifying Christian belief is that Christian theism best explains Jesus predicting Jerusalem's fall. And with that, that is the end of my opening. Thank you. All right, gentlemen, here we are. Time for rebuttals. I have to say those were very entertaining PowerPoint presentations on both on both men's parts. That was great. Um, lots of interesting discussion in the chat. And we have some questions that are going to be uh, that I think are going to lead to some really exciting exchanges later on. But at this point, Kevin, I'm sure you're chomping at the bit to jump in with what you have to say in response to Chris. And so uh, we'll go. Okay. Give me one second to restart my clock. Okay. All right. Um, now I shift back into that same old song and dance of just poking holes in theistic arguments rather than advancing my own arguments from agnosticism. Oh, well, All right. right then. 
Uh, so you'll have to forgive me. My slides are going to be like a little weird just due to some like logistical problems on my end. So Chris, please, please accept my apologies. Um, but I've formatted my slides into a couple of the like main points that you've touched on. The first of which is the is ought problem. Um, the first point that you made was something like this. Atheism simply cannot provide any ought in the sentence like we ought to only believe things for which we have justification. Theism, though, Chris argues, does provide this ought. Here's the thing. I don't entirely disagree with Chris here. Atheism provides no solution for why one ought to believe things until there's sufficient reason to do so. Notably, I'm not actually an atheist. I am an agnostic, but close enough for tonight's debate, right? <laughs> Probably not, but we're just going to go with it. Another note, though, is that I do think that I could see this point without seeding the debate at all. The debate tonight is actually about having justified belief. A theist could argue that justified belief in, in, in God is impossible, but who cares about justified belief? This approach is actually not at all alien to certain religious cultures. Um, let me speak about my own culture, right? Catholicism, and I'm, I'm not an Eastern Catholic, but Eastern Catholics, for instance, they love mysticism. And they're kind of just like, yeah, you can't have justified belief in, the, in God. And I can just have plain old belief. Um, Chris and I could agree here kind of either way, and none of this would impact the debate topic tonight, which is just, is there sufficient reason, not ought we have sufficient reason? So, so I do think that I could just see the ought thing, and like it doesn't actually, like, you know, whether or not we ought to have it, that doesn't actually determine whether or not we do have it. But I'm actually not seeing this point, because I think that I do have a way to circumvent the is ought problem, and I think that theists actually can't solve the is-ought problem, even with an appeal to God. Okay, let's go back to the real world for a second. Chris and I probably do care about justification for belief, whether or not we think that we ought to. I admit I cannot solve the, is, the is-ought problem. So to circumvent the is-ought problem, I need another way to get to an ought from an, you know, maybe I don't need is, right? Let me get to ought through an if, as in, if I care about having reasons for my belief, then I ought to have reasons for my belief. More aggressively, perhaps, I could say something like this. Beliefs that have reason for their belief are more likely true than those that do not have any reason. If I care about my beliefs being true, then I ought to have reasons for my belief. Note here that I'm using an if ought, not an is ought. And I have not, so I still have not solved the is ought problem. But I don't believe that theists have solved the is-ought problem either. It doesn't follow from gold, God, God will hold you accountable for having unreasonable beliefs. Like imagine for a moment that like it's a sin to be unreasonable and therefore like you'll go to hell if you're like having unreasonable beliefs. This still gets us no closer to a solution to the is-ought problem. It does not follow from having unreasonable beliefs will, you know, send you to hell to therefore you ought to have reasons for your belief you would still need to introduce a phrase like, if you want to avoid hell, you ought to have reasonable beliefs. So I don't think that the is-ought problem is, is like the silver bullet that it might seem at first glance. Next is the problem of the one and the many. I can keep my response here, um, you know, relatively short, I guess, you know, partially because I have a lot less time in the rebuttal. But um, I don't think that the problem of the one and the many is a problem at all. I endorsed a philosophical position called myriological nihilism. Clouds are often an example here. Clouds look like one thing from the ground with defined borders. But in a plane, as you're kind of climbing up into the cloud, you can tell that the cloud doesn't actually have clear borders at all. So what is a cloud? Is it any combination of water droplets in the sky? 
If so, there are a near infinite number of clouds in the sky at any given time, even if we cannot see them. Well, I think that Chris in his opening is pointing to God as the solution to the one of the many problem. See, a nihilist about meteorology like me can simply say, yeah, clouds per se do not exist. <laughs> and that sounds crazy, right? But it's not because we can actually just say what really do exist though are the meteorological symbols arranged cloud-wise. And I refer to those as clouds when I'm just kind of speaking with the people, with the Vulgate. Um, but what about Chris's like people example, right? Like how do we, like, you know, Am I saying that that baby and that adult are not the same person? Yes, actually, I am. What I am saying is that there, at one point in time, there is a collection of meteorological symbols arranged baby-wise, and at another point in time, there's a collection of meteorological symbols arranged adult-wise. Um, so the nihilist can kind of just say, yeah, I don't care. Humans, per se, don't exist. Chris says that the plurality is ultimate, and to make that plurality ultimate, let us postulate God as this like plurality anchor. And I'm kind of just saying, I don't need an anchor. I'm just a nihilist about meteorology. So I'm quite happy to say that compound objects, just uh, composite objects, just don't exist. If this all sounds crazy to you, which it probably should, to be honest, given my poor explanation of it, then I'm going to rec recommend this paper to you, Against Parthood by Ted Sider. It is free online. It is easily digestible. And it literally converted me to meteorological nihilism as soon as I finished reading it. I'm happy to defend meteorological, uh, meteorological nihilism more uh, in the open dialogue and in the Q&A after rebuttals. But for now, we're going to move on to the next point. I made this slide and I was so happy with it that I just wanted... So Chris Round, I'm not really talking about DNA a whole lot, so I'm not going to dwell on this slide. But I was just so... I thought this was hilarious and, and, and I'm, a little, I'm a little sad that I won't dwell on this slide. Um, also, um, for those of you who don't get the joke, um, that that's Dr. Seigart. He's, he's like a, uh, he's been on Caption Christianity to say that there is information in DNA. Um, and Dr. Seigart's coming on my show tomorrow. So if you want to see me get whooped by, by the way, I have a bachelor's degree in chemical engineering. Dr. Seigart has a PhD in biochemistry. So if you want to see him just whoop my butt with science and knowledge, uh, tune in tomorrow. But anyway, can't dwell on this slide. Um, lastly, we're going to talk about the destruction of the temple. So, Excuse me, I, I don't think that Jesus really did predict the destruction of the Jewish temple. I recently just finished up a video series on the Marian apparitions at Fatima, which I imagine that the majority of the audience today is non-Catholic Christian. So you probably don't think that Fatima is like a real thing. Um, but part of the Fatima mythos is that the Blessed Virgin Mary predicted the deaths of Lucia's two cousins. And she predicted that World War I would end soon and that eventually a worse war would start after that. So, um, and this was in 1917, mind you. Lucia's cousins died in 1919 and 1920. World War I ended in 1918. And World War II started uh, just, you know, 20 years later or whatever. So sure enough, it seems like these predictions are spot on, right? Well, these predictions were actually made after all those events happened. So the, the prediction about the deaths of Lucia's cousins wasn't made until 1927, like seven years after her cousins died. And the prediction about the end of World War I and the start of World War II wasn't made until 1941. Likewise, Mark was written in either the late 60s or the early 70s, and the Jewish temple was destroyed in 70. So I don't think it's shocking that Mark put these words on Jesus's lips. The paper on the screen here is called The Date of Mark's Gospel Apart from the Temple and Rumors of War, the Taxation Episode as Evidence. 
And it makes the argument that Mark could not possibly have been written earlier than the 29th of August, 71 AD, which is hilariously precise, but the author makes arguments that are completely removed from the temple. So Zeichman, the author, starts off the article by pointing to the common dating methods, which do rely on events from the first Jewish war of 66 to 73 AD. Um, so obviously, like the temple destruction, like people just say that, that it had to be written after that, right? But that's kind of like, you know, we're debating that. So let me not appeal to that. But then there's the whole demon named Legion story. Um, what was a unit of Roman soldiers called? A legion. Let's say that you were like, you found a Polish story written in a journal where there was a demon named Nazi, and you knew that this story was written sometime from 1900 to 1999. Well, the Nazi party didn't exist until 1920, so we can definitely rule out anything before 1920, but we can probably assume that the demon being named Nazi probably has something to do with the Nazis as being seen negatively in Poland, which likely wouldn't have happened until the Nazi invasion of Poland in 1939, or perhaps even a little earlier since it became obvious that the Nazis would invade soon, probably. The story with the demon named Nazi would either be written during or maybe even slightly before or like one or two generations after World War II. This gives us a range from like, let's just say like 1939 to 1979. And the exact same thing happens with the demon, the, the, the demon named Legion in the Bible. It probably occurred during the first Jewish war. Um, and the author in this uh, article uses references to coinage, taxes, geopolitics, and the emperor to conclude that Mark couldn't have been written before 1971. Um, one minute. And that's the end of my rebuttal. Um, I'm really looking forward to the cross dialogue because I think that's going to be the most like uh, 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 important part of tonight's debate. Um, so thanks, everybody. <clears throat> All right. Uh, this is not your grandpa's God debate, as I said in the chat, and not your Uncle Craig's either. So this is this is I like it that we're getting something different because so often with the debate on whether God exists or whether the Christian God exists or whether in this case there's enough evidence to make such a conclusion. You get you get the same stuff over and over. And if I was debating, I would probably give some of that same stuff. But I'm really enjoying uh, having a different take here from both of you than what we typically get. All right. Well, Chris, this is. <clears throat> well, I don't know when you stopped speaking, both for me and for Kevin uh, Braxton, you cut to our camera um, in mid-sentence. <laughs> so anyway, um, I'll get started, though. Uh, there were three arguments that Kevin offered in support of his affirmation that there is not sufficient reason to justify Christian belief. Argument number one was that empiricism is the only method to obtain justified belief. I think this is uh, clearly mistaken for several reasons. First of all, um, this argument from empiricism is self-defeating. See, premise number one cannot be justified empirically. There's no amount of sensory experience or empirical observation that can evidence, that can evince that those things alone are able to justify belief. The same is true, that is, it's, it can't be justified empirically, of premise number two. There's no amount of sensory experience or empirical observation that can evince that the Christian God can't be verified empirically. So right off the bat, this argument is self-defeating. Self it defeats itself. But there's more that could be said. The argument is arbitrary. It's subjectively preferred. There's no objective reason for why I should accept empiricism's standard over some other standard. That is to say, I have no reason for thinking that reason and other possible standards are unable to justify belief. And in fact, it shocks me a little bit um, that Kevin would somehow argue, would appeal to a, a philosopher's survey in which 30-some percent 
compared to 40 something percent of who, who favor empiricism still nevertheless favor rationalism. A whole 30% or more of philosophers, the very authority to which Kevin is appealing, evidently think rationalism is a good way for justifying belief. So, uh, but, but even aside from that, again, I have no reason for thinking that empiricism is the only standard for justifying belief. And of course, the majority of philosophers is not a binding authority. If most philosophers affirm that empiricism is the only standard, so what? In fact, even if most, even if every single philosopher on the planet were to um, argue that um, that the if the if ought that Kevin is arguing, I would still have no reason for accepting the if, um, and for, for that matter, for believing that their explanation of the if is is accurate. That is to say that the truthfulness of the claim that if you want your beliefs to be uh, reasonable or have reasons or be more likely or whatever, even that itself is something I don't. There's no reason I should accept as being that which justifies belief. So the arbitrariness and subjectiveness here um, renders this argument um, neutered. And it's also an unsound argument, as far as I can tell. Not invalid, but unsound. And here's what I mean by that. Premise number two is false. I don't care what um, uh, Ken Ham or any other person at Answers in Genesis, a, a ministry, by the way, which I admire. Um, I don't care what they say or what even my friend Eric Hernandez says. Um, I actually think that what Eric is saying is somewhat true, but I think it's poorly worded because while it's true that the Christian God cannot himself be observed, it does not follow that empirical observations are incapable of leading to the conclusion that God exists. And in fact, there are many arguments that have been offered throughout history for that uh, on that very basis. So yes, we can verify the existence of God by means of empirical observation. We just can't empirically observe God. Also, premise number two is presumptive. If sensory experience counts for justifying belief, as um, Kevin argued, there are countless people throughout history who have claimed to have sensory experience of the Christian God. And Kevin is just presuming that all of those sensory experience, those claimed sensory experiences are uh, uh, illegitimate untrustworthy, whatever. And I'm not willing to be so presumptive. So argument number one, that empiricism is the only method to obtain justified belief is debunked. What about argument number two, that justified belief in the incomprehensible is not possible? Well, firstly, this is not an argument that can be reported empirically. There's no amount of empirical observation or observation, um, sorry, empirical observation or sensory experience that can support the premise that it's impossible to justify incomprehensible beliefs. So by Kevin's own argument, why should I accept that premise? Premise number two also can't be supported empirically. There's no amount of empirical observation or sensory experience that can support that the, the premise that the existence of the Christian God would be incomprehensible. So uh, Kevin's own position pr disproves this argument. Moreover, this argument seems to me anyway to trade on a crucial equivocation. Existence is not the same thing as that something exists. Uh, to put it another way, the nature of God, his essence, his existence, or the manner or mode of his existence may be unfathomable, incomprehensible, or whatever, but the notion that he exists is not at all incomprehensible or unfathomable. Um, here's an example from the natural world, space-time curvature. I don't think anyone on the planet now or has ever been able to comprehend what it means for matterless, uh, vectorless void namely space-time, to be curved. It's utterly incomprehensible. But the fact that it is curved by massive bodies like planets is observable, or at the very least, calculable. 
So something can, there can be, you can believe that something is true, even if you can't comprehend the truth that, uh, whose existence is fathomable. And then lastly, it seems to me that this argument trades on an all or nothing presumption that I don't share. And what I mean by that is that it's true that God, everything about God isn't comprehensible or, or not every, or, or not everything about God is comprehensible. But that doesn't mean that everything about God is incomprehensible. Theologians have long affirmed that we know some things about God's ineffable nature by way of analogy. Um, even in Kevin's own ch loving child example, um, a 12-year-old may not fully grasp real love, but can grasp aspects of it. Um, he can, he or she can know certain things about the, 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 the fuller truth of love that he or she can't yet comprehend because of the things that are true of his or her own experiences. Um, so the fact that we can't understand everything about God does not mean that we can't understand certain things about God, including the fact that he exists. So argument number two, that justified belief in the incomprehensible is not possible is as far as I can tell debunked. But that brings us to Kevin's third argument. Strong bias lowers credibility of one's claim. Now, here I want to acknowledge that when I first watched Kevin's opening case as he presented to, to, to me prior to this debate, I took strong bias in the more colloquial, colloquial sense that he talked about rather than the statistical sense. But I think much of what I'm about to say still holds. Firstly, once again, this argument does not support empirically. It doesn't meet the very standard that Kevin argues is the only standard by which knowledge can be, or belief can be justified as knowledge. There's no sensory experience or empirical observation that can justify the belief that strong bias ought to call a claim into question. And in fact, I would argue that the exact opposite is true. There are tons and tons of very strongly held beliefs, here's where strong bias is uh, in the more colloquial sense, that are justified empirically nevertheless. The globe earth is something that many of us feel are very strongly about. And by the way, I bet you could also find strong bias in the statistical sense in that you find it in areas where scientific, uh, the scientific method is more respected and more practiced than in others. But anyway, the globe earth uh, belief is something many of us feel strongly about so much so that we, we have, we hold people who deny it and who affirm a flat earth in disdain. Or take the human sex binary. Many of us hold very strong, are very strongly biased toward belief in the human sex binary, so, so much so that we pass, that we try to pass laws prohibiting males who identify as females from using female private spaces and from participating in sports with females. And yet, empirically, the human sex binary is uh, verifiable. Empirically, we, we do observe and verify the existence of the human sex binary, notwithstanding the ludicrous and insane arguments by those who claim the contrary. Um, what's more, this, this argument from strong bias is terribly arbitrary. Um, the if that Kevin admitted he smuggled in is arbitrary. Why should I care if my beliefs are accurate? Uh, the strength bar is arbitrary. What constitutes strong bias and how strong must it be in order to sufficiently lower the credibility of one's claim? And the lowering measure is arbitrary. How low must uh, the credibility of a claim be lowered before belief in that claim becomes unjustified? It's arbitrary at every step along the way. 
And thirdly, um, uh, Kevin mentioned in passing that, and this is this comes to that s- strong bias in the statistical sense. Um, he, he argued that you can predict whether people in a geographical area and culture are likely to be Christian believers or not. Um, but this is actually expected on Christian theism because Christian truth claims purport to be revealed only to some people. God reveals distinctly Christian truths to subsets of humanity, according to the, 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 the foundational documents of Christianity. And then those very Christian truth claims that are revealed divinely to individuals and groups are then expected to be propagated evangelistically. God requires his people to persuade others of what he's revealed. And some geographies and cultures are more primed for being persuaded of Christian belief than others. Western thought clearly is more easily persuaded than Eastern thought. And that's because of the things that I already mentioned about propagating evangelistically. And if a, and if a culture is sufficiently hostile toward Christian, uh, Christian theism, it can halt the spread of Christian belief altogether. So all, so none of strong bias does not at all count against the veracity or, or credibility of Christian belief. So this argument number three, that strong bias should lower credibility of one's claim is, as far as I can tell, debunked. And that's my time. Thank you. Before we move on to the um, open discussion, which is, of course, the most exciting part of any debate, I just wanted to say that Chris is a professor, adjunct professor at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary at Trinity Sem. That's Trinity S-E-M dot E-D-U. Also, I really appreciate that you're here. We like to do these debates. And if you would like to see more like this, subscribe to the channel and give us a like. We would really, really appreciate that. Uh, also, the channels for both of these gentlemen are in the description for this video, but it really would mean a lot if you would just take a moment and subscribe to the channel uh, here at Trinity Radio. I really appreciate that. And if you're interested in uh, higher theological learning as a layperson or as someone who's interested in professional ministry, check us out at Trinity SEM. Dot edu. Gentlemen, those openings and rebuttals were fantastic. I enjoyed it. I'm going to try my hardest not to cut myself off in the middle of my own speech. You got to really love hearing yourself talk if you cut yourself off. So, uh, <laughs> or maybe you got to really love Chris Date if you cut yourself off with Chris Date. But in any case, um, uh, good job, gentlemen. Enjoyed that. This is a great debate, and we're just going to go right in to the uh, back and forth. So let's move to that now. All right. Well, if you don't mind, Kevin, I'll get us started here. Uh, and when Braxton has uh, something he wants to ask us about or something like that, he can. But given that so many of these kinds of debates are the Christian being challenged on the evidence that he or she brings in favor of Christianity, I want to focus more, not exclusively, but more on the uh, arguments that you offer in defense of affirming our thesis. Is that okay to get us started? I would love that. Yeah. Awesome. Hey, real quick, real quick, guys, before you jump on that, um, several people in the comments have asked the question, what we mean by evidence. Now that was touched on a little bit. Uh, real quick, could you give me your take on that? Both, do you agree about this issue? Uh, it doesn't seem like it. Just say a couple of things real quickly. I can draw Chris, just we'll like a start super... with, or, uh, oh, okay, no, Kevin. No, no, let, let Kevin, let Kevin go first. <laughs> okay. I was just going to throw out a super general evidence is just anything that makes you believe something. That's it. Chris? Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm I, super I cool think... with. Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. I, I, I wouldn't agree entirely. I, I would, 
reword it a little bit. Uh, I think you said any any reasons why we believe something or something along those or something that makes you believe something. I, I don't actually think that's true. Uh, I, I would put it. I would say something that um, makes the the belief um, more likely than not. Something like it's more likely to be okay. true than not. So uh, I'm 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 def- I'm including in the very definition of evidence the standard um, that I pressed in my in my opening case. So you think that like evidence is objective, like something either is or is not evidence, and it's not up to interpretation. Like it, like there's a stance independent fact of the matter about whether or not something is evidence. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say that it is necessarily a binary. I mean, I think something could be strong or weak evidence or not at all. Um, let me, let me ask a question that I think might help get to it. And I don't mean to derail the debate, but I think this could be an interesting thing. So, uh, when Chris date was here in the city with me, in fact, in this very room I'm in now, I took him to visit bossy field and bossy field is where a league of their own. The film with Tom Hanks was filmed in Evansville, Indiana, where I live. And um, if so, let's imagine that someone came into my office during the week and said, Braxton, I just want to tell you, I saw what appeared to be an alien craft land on Bossy Field in the middle of the baseball game. And uh, the aliens came out and and talked to us for a few moments and then took off. Um, Now, if one person tells me that uh, versus if I have 300 people who are at Bossy Field who come to me and tell me and they were doctors and lawyers and and homeless people and everything in between. If you had them uh, all come into my office, I would think that counts for something. Does the one person count for something? And at what point does it become evidence of something? I think that could be a good test subject for you. Well, I'm interested in what Kevin has to say there, but what I would say is that in both cases, there is evidence, but the volume of evidence is much greater in favor of the belief that the alien did not come and visit than the evidence in favor that the alien did. Um, eyewitness testimony is evidence, notwithstanding the ridiculous claims of the contrary by certain well-known atheists. Um Eyewitness testimony is evidence. And if somebody thinks that he has observed something happening, that's good evidence for that person believing that it in fact happened. But it's possible for for one to be mistaken about one what one thinks one has perceived. And so that's where evidence could be at least on the surface could seem to be evidence in support of some belief, but may actually be mistaken nevertheless. So I don't think it's as clear cut as any of us would like it to be. Um, but I do think that it amounts more to merely something that motivates belief. I think it's something that ought to motivate belief. Kevin, what are your thoughts on the uh, the idea that I just put forward? Yeah, I mean, yeah, so I would count that single claim as evidence. Um, maybe not particularly good evidence, but evidence nonetheless. Um, and I just don't claim to have solved the Izzat problem. So it would be like a little hypocritical of me to say like, um, oh no, evidence is whatever ought to convince you that something is true, or at least like what ought to move you closer. And then you're like, oh, so, so you've solved the Azal problem. I'm like, no. And then you'd be like, well, Kevin, then how does your, ev- like, you know, how does that work for a definition of evidence? And it doesn't. So, um, that's why I kind of go with like the more general. But definition. would you say something like the 300 people, uh, with different people of various backgrounds would be better evidence than the one person? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Sorry. Back now, to your question, Chris. Yeah. But before I do take a note of something, Braxton, cause I'd love for us to have a little bit of time to discuss this during our open conversation time. And I'll forget to bring it up if you don't bring it up later. And that's Kevin's response to my pushing the is ought 
fallacy. Um, he claims that he, he argues that Christians can't solve that problem either, but I don't agree. And I'd like to discuss that toward the end of our time today or, or it's somewhere anywhere along the time. So just take note of that Braxton and we'll bring it up later. So, um, Kevin, what I want to ask you, first of all, is do you think that the two premises of your argument from empiricism are empirically verifiable? No, and I'm so glad that you brought that up. I actually, ooh, I have the lazy approach to apologetics on my desk right now, uh, marked to the chapter on scientism, specifically because I knew that we were going here. Um, so I'm so happy that we're going here first. But to answer your question, and I'm, you're going to go places from here. No, I do not think that I can empirically ver uh, verify any, I can't even, um, I do not have an ability to empirically verify the conclusion of my argument from empiricism. Now take it away. So, well, so I, there's no, there's no, I don't have a plan of attack here. Uh, I'm just thinking as we go. <laughs> And I didn't um, mean to insinuate that you do. I, I just meant no, like, you know, there's, you know. Normally I would. Not an attack. Because... Like a con no, no, it's not an attack. It's it's a conversation. Like there's no. Sure. Yeah. Well, but but the reality is that norm being uh, uh, somebody whose wheelhouse is Bible and theology rather than apologetics, although one day I'd like for it to be, I, I do have plans of attack when we're talking Bible and theology, not so much here. I'm more interested in the ongoing, the flow of the discussion. So if you acknowledge that you can't empirically verify those premises um, in your argument from empiricism, then would you say you're justified in believing that those premises are true? Before I answer that real quick, I actually never have plans of attack, but I do have paths that I hope to walk down with people. It's just, it's the same thing as what you're saying. Potato, potato. Saying, yeah, I'm just saying it's <laughs> different language, but I, th I think it's important, you know, the framing, because um, attack kind of sounds like there's going to be a winner or a loser, but when there's a path that we can walk down, like, we can help each other. Um, Amen. We can, we can serve each other. And then at the end of the day, we both win. You know what I mean? So instead of Amen. an attack, it's like, you know, anyway. Um, but your question was, so Kevin, are you admitting that you cannot have justified belief in the argument from empiricism? And the answer is yes, I agree. I teased that a little bit in my opening statement when I used the word pragmatism. I'm happy to unpack that for you, but I, I want to turn it back to you for now. Well, um, here's the concern I have. You, you you'll recall as we were going back and forth leading up to the debate that your initial opening that you sent me said only, then you changed it to best. Empiricism is the only means of justifying belief. Then you change it to best and then you change it back to only. And I get, I'm guessing that, and tell me if this is correct, that, that the reason you changed it back to only is because to, in some relevant sense, you consider pragmatism to be some kind of subcategory of empiricism. And therefore if it would be empiric so saying empiricism or pragmatism would just essentially reduce to empiricism. Is that fair? Yeah. So if if you read the Wikipedia article on empiricism, pragmatism is actually an entry under empiricism. So I really could have used like either formulation. I just kind of thought that it was less confusing if I bite a couple bullets. Um, and like, I think we ultimately wind up at the same destination, but to avoid biting bullets, frankly, it's like, for about four hours, I was considering trying to pull a rhetorical advantage by not having to bite any bullets. But then I thought to myself, like, what's the point of a debate if we're not kind of like, you know, 
helping each other find those bullets that we either need to bite or we need to say like, whoa, that bullet is just, you know, it's too much for me. I'm not going to bite that bullet. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why I did that. But I, I do think that either one gets you to the same place, um, just kind of different routes. Okay. Well, so since I think we're in agreement that your argument from empiricism isn't empirically justified, let's give you a second, maybe 60 seconds, if you can limit it to that, to explicate your argument for pragmatism or, or maybe your argument from for empiricism from pragmatism. Maybe you can explicate, explicate that argument. Yeah, I don't think I even need 60 seconds, to be honest. So when we actually look at all the different true beliefs that we like, we can tell are true, um, we notice that those that are empirically verified are way better, uh, like way more likely to be true than those that are not empirically verified. So we do that through the scientific process, right? So science, like as a whole, like the past 300 years worth of science is just a testament to that fact. Now, none of that actually says that justified true belief only comes from empiricism. However, if we decide that justification comes from empiricism, then that lets us have a conversation about what justifies beliefs a whole lot easier. The pragmatism thing comes in, which is exactly what Pascal does, where he says, like, I, I can't actually admit that I like know that God exists, but it's pragmatic for me to say that he does, so I'm going to. The same thing happens with the empiricism debate, where I'm saying, um, I'm going to argue that empiricism is what justifies beliefs. However, I accept that on pragmatic grounds. So, um, and then all you're saying is, yeah, no, I don't have justified belief. I just have plain old belief that empiricism, it's like I have belief in my argument from empiricism, but I don't have justified belief in my argument from empiricism in the same way that um, somebody like Pascal has belief in God, even though they don't have justified belief that they, in, okay. in God. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I was able to follow all of that, but um, but it does make me want to ask, you know, you started that by saying our experience is that we have the strongest reasons, our, our beliefs are more strong, most strongly justified through empirical observation. And what I would want to ask is how, how do you know that? Um, because uh, take, for example, uh, planting, uh, planting an argument um, against uh, what is it against naturalism from or for God from evolution, something along those lines, right? So the, uh, the argument goes something like this: I'm not a planting a fanboy like so many apologists, so I'm I'm a little out of my wheelhouse doubly now. But um, but my understanding is that this argument goes something like this: our sensory faculties are have adapted over the hundreds of thousands to millions of years of evolution in order to provide a survival advantage. Um. And this is, of course, assuming uh, Darwinian evolution or, or neo-Darwinian Darwinian evolution, which you might not be surprised is something I reject. But assuming it for the sake of argument, which I – and frankly, I think that any non-theist would have to embrace some kind of uh, common descent type evolution, um, even panspermia, which is something that even somebody like Richard Dawkins has, has, uh, um, has endorsed at one point, still has a great – you know, a, a huge timeline of adaptation through natural selection from an original first panspermia, you know, anyway. So, so the argument is our faculties are adapted to enable survival, but adapt adaptation for survival isn't necessarily um, bolstered by 
veracity, ver uh, by, by accuracy. So if it's the case, I'm not asking you to rebut Plantinga's argument, um, but what I am curious to know is if it's the case that even our repeated and consistent measurements are themselves questionable, then why conclude that empirical observation and sensory experience is the best way to have justified belief? Yeah. So, I mean, the one thing that I would try to do like in this um, situation is just removing the human aspect from it as much as we possibly can. Now, obviously, like the final leg of it is always going to be human perception, right? So um, like, let's say that I, I set up some kind of science experiment that runs entirely from, you know, computers or whatever. At the end of the day, those photons are still hitting my eyeballs. And then I just have to trust that those photons hitting my eyeballs actually do like reflect the actual world. Um, and so that final leg, I'm never going to be able to actually like get over. And so, but is it, is it, is it limited to the final leg though? I mean, isn't there human observation and experience at literally every second uh, stage along the way of developing this machinery, testing this machinery, um, using this machinery, and then finally reading its readout? Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. That's probably a bad example. Um, maybe I could say something like this. If I observe a rock falling and I observe another rock fall and I observe another rock fall, like off a cliff or something, like a totally natural process where no humans were involved, um, I might eventually think to myself like, okay, I think I have enough experience now that like to justify belief that rocks fall off of cliffs. Okay, um, well, pause, pause right there though, because even there... Um, I'm not sure why one would assume that. Um, you know, well, I was getting there who... actually. Okay, I apologize. Go on. I was going to say that, like you, you might get there, but you're that that like all I've done is kind of reduced the legs, I guess. But that last leg is still there, and you can never get over that last leg. Nobody can. Okay, but but I'm not sure what last leg you're referring to there. But 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 putting that aside, because I don't think it's super important. The the thing I want to ask you is. Even if I observe the same phenomena happening from the same starting point a thousand times, unless one begins with the assumption that the universe operates intelligibly, why assume that the thousand and first rock drop won't is going to continue to act in the same way? I mean, I mean, maybe it's just what you said a moment ago, which is that we just have to. Okay, but I'm not. I'm not sure I agree. Yeah, so we certainly don't have to, right? Like, I could just choose right now to be like, you know what? I am going to act as if not, like, no laws of nature actually hold anymore. I'm just going to live my life as if gravity is going to reverse at any moment and magnetism is going to stop working. And I could just choose to do that, right? So I certainly don't have to. However, um, this goes back to the pragmatism thing. Um, so why, so why do I think that the sun will rise tomorrow for the classic example? Because it's pragmatic to do so. That's it. I don't know okay. that the sun will rise tomorrow. I don't know that gravity won't suddenly reverse in, a, in approximately 15 seconds. I don't know that. But it's pragmatic for me to believe that it won't, so I don't. All right. Well, let me press you one more on once more. Um, well, a little once more on this particular line of reasoning, and then maybe talk a little bit more about your first argument. Um, oh, there was somewhere I was going with this, and it just left my mind. Um, okay. Yeah. So we could certainly debate. I'm not sure if you would. Uh, disagree with me, though, we could debate whether the scientific um, 
the scientific enterprise is an enterprise that was made possible in the first place by Christian belief. We could debate that, but both Christian and non-Christian, many non-Christian and non-Christian historians credit the development of the scientific enterprise to the, the belief by Christian scientists that the universe is intelligible and therefore we can conclude things from observations that are repeated because it was created to be intelligible by an intelligent creator. So my question for my last question on this particular line of reasoning on the, on this first argument is why should I think that pragmatism is a better reason to assume that the thousand and first time I do something, it's going to happen the same way as it did the first thousand times rather than belief that the universe is intelligible by virtue of having been created by an intelligent creator. So your question is like, what kind of advantage do you have for changing your reason for belief that things generally like, like gravity won't change for instance? Not necessarily advantage. I'm just asking what makes pragmatism more justifying of belief that physics will continue to operate in the way they have for all of our experience, more justified than attributing that belief or basing that grounding that belief in belief that the universe is intelligible, having been created by an intelligent creator. So I guess I'm I'm not entirely sure that I understand the difference. I almost thought that I knew where you were going, but then you you didn't. So I might need to ask a clarifying question if that's all right. Okay, please. Um, so I thought that you were going to say something along the lines of like, um, why is pragmatism better than just being a theist and then saying like, it is this way because God made it that way. But that's not what you said. What you said was, what's the like difference between pragmatism and then God having created a universe that is predictable in this way? Um, right? Right. Well, so, so let me try to put it one more way. Um, the question I had asked was, why should one assume that after a thousand trials, the thousand and first will result the same? And we represent, it seems to me, two different reasons for why we believe that thing, that, that claim. Your reason, by your own admission, was pragmatism. The reason I offered was the reason that has often um, been pointed to as the reason why the scientific revolution took off. And that is the universe is intelligible because God is intelligent. And my question for you is why, what, what reason, what reason do I have um, or, or, or better, better put, why is your reason for believing the thousand and first trial will operate like the past 1000 better than my reason? I guess it just has a parsimony advantage. Like your reason kind of sounds like it is my reason with an extra step. Okay, but uh, so so something along the lines of Occam's razor. Is it yeah. is it your is it your impression that Occam's razor says the 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 explanation with the fewest entities is likeliest to be true? Is that your impression? No. Is it no? Okay. No. Yeah. So, so the and what you just phrased is like just hey, whatever is simpler is right, and that's like evidently not the case, or at the very right? least likeliest. <laughs> Sure, right. sure. And that's evidently not the case, right? Like there are tons of complicated reasons why things happen. Um, right. So, sorry, so would, is it, are you, would you agree with me that what Occam's razor in fact states is, is nothing about what's likeliest, but rather what's most prudent in terms of analysis. So what I mean by that is what Occam's razor says is that, look, given any phenomenon, we've got 
potentially a laundry list of proposed explanations. And every single one of those proposed explanations is going to require time and effort to analyze to see if it can, in fact, explain the observed phenomenon. And what Occam's razor, I think, states is that it's most prudent to begin an analyzing the explanations with the fewest entities because those will take the least amount of time and effort to analyze. But what that, but that has no bearing whatsoever on whether um, the, the explanation with the fewest entities is the likeliest. And so you said parsimony. You said um, the, the fact that your reason for believing the thousand and first trial will result the same way the first thousand did is because uh, that's there are just these laws of nature, meaning there's a way that the universe simply is, as a brute fact, intelligible. It, it, it is ordered. Um, whereas mine requires at least one additional entity, namely um, the existence of, a, of an intelligent creator. And what that certainly does, I think, is um, support an argument, at least, that I should analyze the more parsimonious explanation first. But that's not my question. My question isn't, which should I analyze first? My question is, what makes your explanation, regardless of whether it's more parsimonious, better at um, explaining the observed phenomenon than my arguably less parsimonious explanation? Yeah, so if your explanation and my explanation both have the same explaining power, but mine is just more parsimonious, then I'm going to believe the more parsimonious one, given the same explaining explaining power. Okay, so so what? Uh, how would you argue that yours has more explanatory power? No, no, it has the same explanatory power. Oh, sorry, the same, yeah. Uh, on what basis? See, here, cause, so here's what I would throw out as the explanatory power of Christian theism. The universe is ordered or intelligible. We can make sense of it. The, the thing, you know, the thousand and first trial will function the same way the first thousand do, precisely because it is imbued with intelligibility by an intelligent creator. Okay, uh, and there's so much more that can be said there. For example, I mean, take for example the book, um, the Privileged Planet. Right? There's an Michio argument Kaku? to be made. I'm sorry, Michio Kaku. I, I don't know the name, but but the Privileged Planet is basically. Pretty the sure argument. I read that one like a long time ago. Sorry, it's been a while. It's okay. It's right. It's an intelligent design argument that says that um, the the argument not only appears to have been designed, but it also appears to have been designed such that it would be discoverable to humans. Right. So so um, there there appears to be the intent behind the creation of the universe that it's discoverable. And and all of this and much more could be said that uh, seem to me to offer a tremendous amount of explanatory power. If I've understood you correctly, the universe's intelligibility is simply a brute fact. And my yeah. question is, how is that equal amount of explanatory power to the what I just characterized and, and the much more that could be said about it? So, for instance, you and I both think the same thing. We think that gravity will continue working tomorrow, the same that it worked today, right? So right. If, we both, if we both think the same thing, then we are explaining the same thing with just two different hypotheses. My hypothesis is gravity will keep working tomorrow the way that it has before because that's just how gravity is. And yours is that's just how gravity is because God made it that way. Right. So you actually have very little, it seems to me, in terms of explanatory power. The, the explanation is, it just is. Whereas I'm offering 
more than that, it seems to me. A greater yes. amount of explanatory power. And so that's why no, I'm No, no, not a greater out. amount of explanatory power. You're sacrificing parsimony. We're explaining sure. the same thing. Well, no, no, no. We're explaining the same phenomenon, but that doesn't mean that the competing explanations are equivalent in explanatory power. And you're right that mine is at least by some measures more or less parsimonious than yours, but we've already established that that's irrelevant to what makes a view more likely than the other if at the very least they uh don't lack or they don't have comparable explanatory power so my perception is is that your proposed explanation despite explaining the same phenomenon nevertheless has less explanatory power to do so than mine and i just want to know why should i think that yours actually has as much explanatory power as mine rewinding just a second i think you said that you and i agree that parsimony is irrelevant um, you'll have to forgive me. Um, if I meant, if I said parsimony is irrelevant, I certainly didn't mean to, um, parsimony is relevant when explanatory power is the same. Do, no, do I know, but that's why, that? but that's why I, but that's why I added that I don't concede that the explanatory power of these two competing explanations is, is equal because all your explanation is just, that's just the way it is. And I would argue there's a question to, to be asked whether that's even an explanation at all. Whereas I'm saying, or, or right here, maybe here's another way we could put it. We could talk about the principle of sufficient reason, right? Which, which is of course in and of itself, something that's debatable, but what you have offered isn't really a reason at all. It's just, it's just saying this is the way it is. Whereas what I'm offering is a bona fide reason. Um, it is a, a sufficient reason to explain the continuity and intelligibility of the natural world. So, if so, either what I'm looking for is either um, reason to think that our competing explanations are in fact equal in power, or a reason for thinking that your your explanation's parsimony outweighs what I perceive to be its its smaller degree of explanatory power. I'm wondering if you and I have a misunderstanding about what explanatory power means. Probably, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, so let's let's maybe dig a little deeper there and see if that doesn't help kind of get us over this little road road bump. Um, okay. So explanatory power would be something like this. So um, if I say that um, I think that the boulder fell off a cliff because, and then I explained to you the amount of joules that were imbued into this boulder, like joules of energy, right? That's like an energy unit. Um, when another rock collided with it, and then because of some kind of Newtonian mechanics that was able to fall off the cliff, you know, because it had enough energy to move that much mass a certain distance. Let's say that that was my explanation. And let's say your explanation was boulders just fall. Um, my explanatory power would be greater there, even though it's less parsimonious, right? So we agree there. But the explanatory power is describing the event that takes place. The explanatory power does not refer to, for instance, all the other ways that I could apply Newtonian mechanics. So in the same way, the God solution's explanatory power doesn't refer to all the different things that the God solution could explain. Rather, explanatory power is about a single event. So the God solution um, explanatory power with regard to gravity is the same as the brute force explanation when it comes to the existence of gravity. That was a lot. Let me 
yeah, take it over. No, I mean, I I think I understand it, but it's as you said, I think we fundamentally disagree on what explanatory power is. Maybe we can, maybe we can sidestep that disagreement by just talking about uh, a specific example. Um, You've got, and, and here I'm getting increasingly out of my wheelhouse, but I know a little bit about science. And my understanding is that the reason why, um, uh, general relativity is more wide, has more widespread acceptance now among scientists than pre-Einstein Newtonian physics is because, because although both are attempts to explain the data, um, the data is more consistent with or better explained by uh, general relativity than it is by Newtonian physics. Or take the debate between heliocentrism and um, uh, uh uh, uh, geocentrism, right? These are both, these are both, we don't actually observe the planets rotating around the sun or, or for that matter, um, the planets and the sun orbiting around the earth. We don't observe that, but we do are observe things from which we can extrapolate and calculate and so forth. Um, and when we do that, we find that heliocentrism is a much better explanation of what we observe than geocentrism in the same way. It seems to me that general relativity better explains what we observe than um, Newtonian physics. So my question is what makes, or, or yeah. So, so I guess, why do you think that the, that, that, that whatever we mean by explanatory power, that brute fact is a better explanation for the observation of intelligibility in the ordered cosmos than the explanation that an intelligent creator imbued as any intelligent creator would his creation with intelligibility. I, I hate to sound like a broken record, but okay. parsimony. So parsimony. And and the reason the reason it is parsimony is because the explanation is the same. Like we are both saying that like what is is. Right? Like at the end of the day, that's what we're saying. What is is, but, but I'm not, saying what really. is. Sorry, I mean, that is that what you're saying. Trying... Go ahead. Well, I mean, I, 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 that's what I mean by brute fact. That that does seem to me to be, to be what you're saying. What is is. What I'm saying is what is is because of this other explanation that is separate from or is distinct from what is. Right. So yours is your, you your explanation is. is your explanation seems to me to be what is, is. Mine is what is, is because of this other is. Do you think that God is? Yeah. Yeah. So so you think that what is, is as well, right? That's all I meant. Right. But, but, it, wasn't, but, but it wasn't anything deeper than that. Okay. Well, let, let, let's, let me ask one more question about your first argument, and then we can shift gears and let you press me on mine if you like. Um, you argued that... Um, uh, the Christian God can't be empirically valid, verified, but I don't see why I should accept that. Um, how would you, how do you respond to my argument that while I can't observe God, I can observe, say the effects of God. So for example, um, if I was sleeping, not observing anything external to my own mind, and then I wake up and I go out into my driveway and it's wet, you know, and, and the, what's wet is a, um, the whole ground from horizon to horizon, except for the square where my, where a car appears to have just been. Right. I mean, we, we could, we could put all sorts of flesh on these bones, but the point is I didn't observe rain 
Um, given my unconscious state, I couldn't have observed rain, but I can, I can observe other empirical things that lead to the conclusion that it rained. So my question is, uh, I, or, and, and similarly, I can't observe conscious activity. I, I, can't, I can't observe conscious experience right, of anybody else's, but I can observe empirically the effects of that conscious activity. So what, so how do, does that affect your argument at all? I guess is the question I want to ask here. I mean, yeah, it kind of does. So with the like consciousness, um, example, so I'm actually a reductionist when it comes to anything like mental. So, um, so, so I don't actually think that there is like this consciousness per se that exists like sans like material. Um, I, don't I, I think that our, all right, sweet. So, so I guess the consciousness thing we we more or less just agree on. But you had this bigger point, right? And with, of which consciousness was just one example, and that was something like, "Hey, look, um, we can know that rain exists without seeing rain wait, because wait, wait, we wait, can wait, see wait, the effects of rain." Sorry, I, go ahead. I, I really I, I want to push back on the consciousness thing one just just oh, for sure. the sake of clarity because I frankly think that's a good one to discuss if we can agree on what I'm trying to get at. I agree that, um, I, so I'm what's called a non-reductive uh, physicalist. I am a physicalist. I don't believe that minds exist um, as concrete objects, um, as say souls, for example. I believe that the mind, such as we call it, is really a way of describing properties emerging, emergent from the functioning brain, you know, something along those lines, but not irreducible there too. So there, and there's more that we can get into that. But the point that I'm getting at is I, I agree we can observe neurons, right? We could observe neurons firing in a, in the skull, in the brain inside the skull of a test subject, if we have sufficient measuring devices or whatever, but no matter how extensively and comprehensively and precisely we observe those neurons and their activity, what we can't observe is the qualia of that person. Um, we can't observe the, um, the visual field that is um, produced in that mind and that consciousness by the functioning of the neurons, etc. So, so this seems to be to be a perfect example of a um, non something that can't be observed empirically i can't observe qualia but i can observe empirically the effects of qualia do you, uh, do we know, do we know what qualia i mean are we, I'm, I'm assuming oh, yeah, you know what qualia I'm, is but maybe that's a, okay yeah All right. yeah so i i actually just i'm either like you know i oscillate back and forth between being like an eliminativist and a reductionist about even qualia um so like i don't think that like there is per se an experience of seeing red I think that what there is, there are photons, there are, you know, neurons in the brain that read the signals from the eyes and all that. Um, that is what exists. Um, so it, I know it's, it's like upsettingly simple, <laughs> but that's where I'm at. All right. Well, I've taken up a lot of your time and I don't want to monopolize our conversation. So let me turn the reins over to you for a bit or, you know, and we can go as long as you want. If it's Okay. I'd like to kind of ask you about my like arguments. Cause I think that like what we have here tonight is like really special where it's like the agnostic is the one who's actually like kind of on, you know, on trial. And I say that tongue in cheek. Um, so if it's all right, I'm going to ask you questions about empiricism and stuff like that. Like it's going to be, 
and and then if you want me to ask you questions about your stuff, I'm happy to do so. But I just think that like what we have here tonight is kind of special, you know? Yeah. Cool. Okay. So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about empiricism. Um, okay. So I guess my first question is, um, I would be like super thrilled if um, there was some other way of justifying belief, which also justified itself. Like, because, you know, uh, as we've already discussed, I don't think that you can have justified belief in the argument from empiricism, but I think that empiricism is what justifies all your other beliefs, right? So, like, wouldn't it be great if we did have something better than empiricism, right? Um, and I guess when I hear people who, like, you know, kind of um, think that empiricism isn't, you know, the greatest thing ever, right? Which, you know, I'm, I'm kind of here being like, you know, empiricism is the greatest thing ever. And some people are like, whoa, Kevin, not so fast. My response is always like, hit me with it. Like, let's go. Like, if there's something better than empiricism, I will drop what I'm doing and put away the empiricist label and pick up this new label of whatever does a better job than empiricism does. So I guess my question for you is something like, hey, do you have something, like, can you help me? Like, do you have something better? Well, I'd love, I, I can try to answer that question, but before I do, I don't understand what seems to me to be the shifting of the goalposts, because your argument was not that empiricism is the best, it was that it's the only. You're right. So, so if, 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 you, if we are conceding that it's not, in fact, the only method of justifying belief, um, and what you really want to know is what would be a better way, well... That and that that still isn't a precise enough question to answer, because um, there I, I think there are different categories of knowledge that, by virtue of being different categories, must therefore um, be justified by varying means. So I do think that there are that there is knowledge that is justified best. Sorry, there are beliefs that are justified best, therefore constituting knowledge, at least on. Uh, traditional means knowledge. of defining knowledge. Like, to, yeah, right. Yeah. Who cares? We don't, we don't um, need to debate the definition of knowledge. It's all right. <laughs> right, right. So I, I would agree that there are plenty of beliefs that are best justified by um, empirical observation, sensory experience, etc. Um, and the specific category I'm talking about are, are uh, physical phenomena, um, empirical phenomena. Um, so things that happen or things that are in the physical cosmos in, in you know, contained within the space time of our universe. But by definition, that's not the case with uh, the God of Christian theism. And so when it comes to the existence of that God, I do think that empirical observation is one good way of getting to that. Because once again, while I would agree that the exist that God himself cannot be a, uh, epist um, empirically observed, we can nevertheless extrapolate to conclude to the existence of that God by virtue of empirically observed phenomena. Um, but secondly, I would argue that by, by the very definition that, that the Christian God is not empirically observable suggests that there are better ways at getting to, uh, at justifying belief in that God, one of which it seems to me would be reason, would be rationality. And so um, this is why I pressed on things like why, why, you know, look, we we all live every single moment of our lives um, based on the belief that 
the universe is ordered and intelligible, that it will continue to work in the way that, is, that it has always worked. But I can't think of any rational way to justify that belief. Um, sorry, sorry, any empirical way to justify that belief. Um, it's, as you said, just a brute fact if we, um, if we prioritize empirical um, yeah, it's an unjustified belief. It's, an, it's an empirically unjustified belief. Yes. Right. Um, and if empiricism is the only game in town, then it just plain old is an right. unjustified belief. Yeah. Fair. Exactly. But I don't concede, and evidently neither do 30 or more percent of philosophers concede, that empiricism mm -hmm. is the only game in town. Rationalism seems to be another one. And it seems to me that there's a good argument to be made rationally that the best um, the, the, the justification for the belief or the best justification for the belief in the orderedness and intelligibility of the universe is um, that it is best explained by a rational mind. Uh, okay. Let me, I guess first, let me first apologize for my sloppy language there at the beginning. It's okay. Um, I think I said something in the beginning where like in normal, like everyday speech, I use the Wikipedia definition, but I, I need to be precise with my language. This was an example of me not being precise. This was me doing exactly the thing that I said I, I shouldn't be doing. So, you know, shame, We're shame all on hypocrites. Me. It's okay. But, but <laughs> yes. So um, with that, you know, you know th there's my mea culpa, right? So, so there's mine, but um, I guess, let me ask you this. So, uh, I think I said in my opening statement, rationalism, we can just leave it as this. It's just not empiricism. So I guess, how do you see rationalism working? Like, how how is rationalism uh, justifying beliefs? Well, um, I, there are a number of different means by which rational thinking or, or, or logical reasoning um, justify beliefs. One of them is through deduction. Um, so in that syllogism, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal, you've got a, a, a logically valid uh, deduction. And if it weren't for the resurrection and subsequent immortality of our Lord Jesus Christ, it would be a sound um, syllogism as well, as it is it, Christ did rise immortal, and therefore that syllogism is unsound. Um, but anyway, deduction is one means. And I actually do not think much of, of a whole lot of attempts at deductively proving the existence of God. Um, some of them I do, but I didn't want to make this the ordinary debate that everybody's already watched. Um, but the deduction isn't the only way that rational um, thought or, or logical reasoning justifies belief. I think it can also do so through abduction um, or abductive reasoning, which is given n number of competing explanations for uh, an observed phenomenon, which explanation has the most explanatory power, at least using that phrase the way I intend it. Um, and so I do think that um, there are cases in which abductive reasoning is a more a reliable justification for belief than empirical um, observation. And in particular, I'm thinking here about truths that cannot be observed empirically, um, like the existence of the Christian God. Okay. So I guess I've got a question for you about like um, deduction and abduction. Um, how, so like for, in, for instance, in the um, all men are mortal, Socrates is immortal. Oh, sorry. Uh, Socrates I'm is a man, mortal. all men are mortal, therefore. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So how would you go about um, proving or disproving the soundness of the premises? 
Well, so uh, let's take, for example, um, I, I, I suspect that we would agree that the second premise would be pretty trivially um, justified. If you want to press me on that, we we can. But let's let's talk about the first one. All men are mortal. It's not so oh, much right. that I want to press you on the truth of the premises. It's that I want to know how we find out the truth right. of the premises. And right, I, I guess I'm leading you in a little bit. So let me just kind of ask the question plainly, I guess. Okay. Are we using rationalism or are we using empiricism? Uh, well, I think we're using rationalism. And that's because I think that those premises um, eventually – cease to find empirical justification and require rational justification. So take, for example, the premise that all men are mortal. Um, the extent to which that can be empirically justified is the universal observation of people since at least 70 AD and prior to uh, 30, or sorry, uh, 33 AD and prior to 33 AD that, uh, that every single human being who has ever lived or will ever live or has ever lived has been mortal. Um, and of course we could also talk, uh, throw Elijah or Elisha in there as well, but that's a whole other discussion. Um, but, but then the question, of course, given my own arguments today would be, why should I, uh, believe that just because one, no, sorry. So I'm not actually going there where I am going though, is how do we determine that all men are mortal or how do we determine that Socrates is a man? Right. Well, I, I think that's what I'm trying to get to. We determine we we observe every single human being we observe with the except with the possible i would yeah but 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 that was very the part of my very answer um the the observation only gets us so far the observation gets us to the premise that all humans that i personally or that anybody i know or have read etc has observed has been mortal it only that's all it gets us and but but what that doesn't get us is that that is true of every human that will have, that will exist. The way that we get to that, I think, is only through rationalism, which is the uh, the, the the consistent and universal observation just justifies belief in what has not yet been observed, because the um, reality, uh, physical reality, has been created by a, a god who is rational, and therefore his creation will be rational. Okay. So the argument here is, and don't let me straw man you, like, tell me, tell me where I'm wrong. Um, the way that we find out if, for instance, Socrates is a man is through rationalism, not through empiricism. No, no, no. Um, I, I think it's observation, once again, that gets us to Socrates is or was a man, because what we observe are historical records, Socrates' own writings, etc., um, so we, we can cert- uh, empiricism gets us uh, arguably to that premise. But what I'm saying is that at least for the first premise, empiricism only gets us so far. It's not that it's devoid of empirical justification. It's that the empirical justification is insufficient. The empirical justification only gets us to the observation that every single human being we've ever observed has, has been mortal. What it doesn't get us is therefore every future human being will also be mortal. And that is only justified. But, but that's implied in the premise. Right. And and so the only way to get to that implied part of the premise or justify that implied part of the premise is through a rational argument that what we have observed universally about the past will continue to be the case in the future. Do we do we agree, at least for the premise that Socrates is a man, that that uh, we've we've come to the conclusion that Socrates is a man through empiricism? 
Um, I don't think so. Uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm more likely to see that than that the first premises uh, premise is empirical, uh, empirically justified, but but not quite. And the reason is because. Um, for 2,000 years or more, I'm, I'm not exactly sure when Socrates lived, but I want to say classical period or maybe somewhere between that and the time of Christ. Um, so at least for 2,000 years, nobody has observed a man named Socrates. What we have observed are the historical records of people that experienced or that themselves claim to have observed Socrates um, and the writings of somebody who purported to be Socrates, etc. Um, but uh, but what we don't get from that through empiricism alone is that those records are accurate, that, that there was, in fact, this person named Socrates who was, in fact, a man. Um, it doesn't get us to those historical records are sufficiently reliable to justify belief that Socrates is a man. The, the, there's, there's still more work to be done in order to make it a truly sound um, uh, syllogism. And what I'm arguing is that the rationalism or something else, you know, like you said, something other than empiricism, um, is required to get us the rest of the way. He's back. May, may I add one? May yeah, I maybe please. kind of just so um, where I was trying to get to was it's 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 my contention that abduction and induction are grounded in empiricism. Um, and uh, and that like you know, when you make your syllogisms, you're actually defending the soundness of your syllogism using empiricism. And so that's kind of where I was going. Obviously, well, that's we fine. disagree. Well, we don't. What we, we don't disagree on the way what you said. Now, if what you said was instead abduction and induction are justified solely by empiricism, well, then we disagree. Because what I've been trying to argue with varying degrees of success for the past few minutes is that Empiricism alone doesn't ground justification for those syllogisms. It gets us part of the way, but not all of the way. And something more than empiricism is needed to justify the rest of what's implied in those premises. And I'm happy to leave it there. Yeah, it was great, though. Super, super mind bending. I love it. That was fantastic. I really enjoyed that. Um, great debate. So let's move into a time of Q&A and um, we'll pick up on some of the threads that have been uh, used here. So just make sure you all, give all of the hard questions to Kevin. <laughs> we'll start with Kevin for that very reason. It's only fair. It's totally fair. This is my turn to be grilled. <clears throat> Isn't bias true of both sides? And wouldn't this be a circumstantial ad hominem fallacy? Wait, wait, now before Kevin answers this, can I just request that whoever the person that that isn't asked the question can still offer a brief comment after the person. Oh yeah. 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 We're, and, and, and we'll be somewhat informal about this. Kevin can yeah. talk and then you'll talk, whatever. Yeah. Cool. And my answer here is super simple. Uh, isn't bias true like of both sides? Yes, absolutely. Everybody has some kind of bias. And if we weren't going to believe anybody who had any bias, we wouldn't believe anybody ever. So um, that's why I put the word strong in parentheses there. Um, in, in the argument, because if, you know, if I tried to make the argument that anybody who's biased ever, it's like, you just can't trust them. That's a losing argument. So, so, I mean, I largely, I largely agree with, with the comment. Chris. Um, yeah, I'll just add that, um, bias in the sense that I think Kevin meant it, the statistical bias, um, is something that's actually predicted by Christian theism, namely, uh, if I understand statistical bias correctly, 
if you, you you could predict whether somebody's likely to be a Christian in Iraq versus in the U.S., for example. And what I would argue is that that's actually not an argument against the um, uh, the, the justifiability, if that's the whatever, of Christian belief, because Christian belief predicts that very thing by virtue of the fact that it it. it affirms that God has revealed distinctly Christian truths only to some people and has a, and calls those people to spread that message evangelistically. All right. Uh, now we have, we're going to do something here that I try to stay away from. And that is, there are a few questions from the same person, but it's someone that you both know, I think. Um, Faith because of reason says, I wonder why Chris thinks that authority is necessary for epistemic justification. Yeah, that's a good question. So um, what I mean by that is, and, and I'm using authority a little loosely there, but what I mean by that is that given to, uh, gi given a purported um, standard by which um, belief can be justified, um, the fact that such a standard exists does not alone make it the one that is uh, that is most conducive or best at justifying belief, um, or or the one that that we are intended um, in in the case of a Christian theism, because I think we're intended by virtue of. And this goes back to the question I wanted you to ask us about Braxton, so maybe we'll get some time to that at some point. But um, but intended to believe based on one particular standard over another. Um, how, whatever, however you might want to get from the fact that a standard exists to it being the one that best or only justifies, that seems to me to require some kind of authority um, by which I don't necessarily mean merely somebody to whom you're accountable, but somebody who, um, who, who, who can dictate uh, that this is the standard to which we are all universally held in terms of justifying beliefs. Um, I don't know if that's even intelligible, but that's my answer. Kevin, do you have any rejoinder to that? No, I think this this was, I guess, you know, my response here would be that I don't I don't think that an authority is necessary, period, end of sentence. That's really all I got. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Chris, I, I had a uh, note here about this. There's something you said he thought that Christians couldn't solve it either. Was it the problem yeah. of the one and the many or what, what was it? No, 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 no. So what, what Kevin said, what, Seth, what Kevin said, and I've heard, I've heard atheists argue this before, um, by which I don't mean to say that Kevin should be counted an atheist, but, but I've heard atheists argue this, that I'm not that, offended by the, the label. Really? I'm not. Okay. Like, that's fine. I don't use it myself, but like if somebody, people call me that because they just assume it and I'm, I don't like cry much. I cry only sure. a little bit about it, but sure. I understand. So, so th this is something that comes up in, um, w when Christians and non-Christians discuss the argument, uh, the, the moral argument for God. Um, and the argument often goes something like this. Um, uh, if there is no God, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Objective moral values and duties do exist. Therefore, um, there is a God. Um, and the, and many atheists, it seems to me, are saying, well, or, or, or let me put it another way. Christians often push back against atheist accountings of morality by saying that you can't get from an is to an ought. Okay. The fact that it is the case that, for example, um, certain decisions, certain moral activities are more conducive to human flourishing does not mean that we ought to do the things 
and think the things that are most conducive to human flourishing. And what Kevin, I think, is 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 arguing and what atheists will often argue is that, OK, but but. Uh, that doesn't mean that you Christian can get that either because purportedly or allegedly what the Christian's argument boils down to is there is a God who will hold us accountable. And this is by the way, the language that I used when I originally shared this with Kevin prior to this debate, but it's not the language I used in, in the debate itself. Um, simply by virtue of the fact that we are held accountable does not mean that we, th th so there's an is right. That we will be held accountable does not get us to the ought that therefore we ought to do, what is good or, or what, what that God will hold us accountable to doing. All right. So, so likewise, even if it's the case that um, an, an authoritative, an authority is needed to endorse one particular standard over another, that does not, we don't get from that to the fact that we therefore ought to reason according to this or that particular standard. But, but I want to push back against that. I'm not convinced that that atheists uh, Again, not Kevin, but but that athe the general atheist argument is is accurate. Um, it does. I agree that merely being held accountable doesn't get to an ought, at least not an unqualified ought. Um, but I do suspect at very at the very least that telos can get you to an ought. What I mean by that is, uh, by way of analogy, if I am a uh, the principal of a school and I'm trying to hire. Uh, and, I, and I hire you to teach a particular subject to the students in a the classroom, then I am imbuing your existence within that classroom and your activity there with telos, with purpose. And if and 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 therefore, given the purpose, the telos of your presence and activity in that classroom, therefore you ought to, in fact, teach the subject you were hired to teach in accordance with the standards and practices by which you're expected to teach that subject. So likewise, if humans are not merely creatures, but are purposed creatures, are creatures with telos, with design, with intent, with purpose, something that we are meant to be and do, then I do think we, at least I suspect, we do get to an ought at that point. The ought doesn't come from the accountability. It hold, it, it comes from the telos, or so it seems to me. Uh, if I oh. may. Um, yeah, go ahead. So teleology is actually, like, the thing that stops me. Like, so um, when people ask me, like, so, so, like, you grew up, like, really Catholic. Like, why aren't you Catholic anymore? If I don't want to talk about it, I'm just like, teleology. And they're like, tele what now? And I'm like, never mind. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but so me and teleology, we go way back. But um, uh, and so if you saw me smiling when you brought up teleology, that's why. Um, so it it probably goes without saying that I don't I don't think that teleology exists. But I can actually assume that they do, and still kind of just pose a question to you: teleology exists. So what? That's still just an is. Like, why should um? So. Uh, like teleology is often discussed when it comes to Catholic sexual ethics. So why should I behave in a way in accordance with Catholic, Catholic sexual ethics? Um, like, so here, here we go is the syllogism. Like Kevin has the telos of being in line with Catholic sexual ethics. Um, therefore Kevin ought to be in line yeah. with Catholic sexual ethics. Like it still doesn't follow. It's still, it's, you know. Well, but, but I think it does because I think it follows by definition. What I mean by that is that it seems to me that telos is by definition obligation, 
um, at least when when the telos in question is that of a rational agent, right? Um, so uh, if your purpose is to be and act a certain way, then by definition you ought to be and act a certain way. Um, it would be sort. It, it seems to me anyway that it would be like saying um, that the fact that a um, let's see how do I put this. Uh, a, if a circle is a an infinite number of points each equally distant from a radius or something like that, um, the fact that that is the case doesn't get you to circles having 360 degrees or something like that. But but in fact it does because the very definition of circle as such gets you to 360 degree angle. Uh, kind of thing. It's not the best analogy, but that's what I'm trying to argue is that telos is by definition something that that brings with it uh, obligation. Well, let me let me jump in for a, a quick moment and offer what could be an analogy or an example of what you're talking about. So let's say that you had the inventor of the shovel standing before you and he says, OK, I invented this shovel in order to dig dirt or whatever. Um, that's what it's for. That's that's it's that's what I intend as its creator or as its inventor or a hammer to put nails into boards. That's that's what I intend. And uh, in like manner, if mankind has an inventor or a creator in God, well, wouldn't this mean that the the, the very existence of the thing that was invented for a purpose implies its obligation to a purpose? So Aristotle wrote about teleology in two different ways. There's extrinsic teleoi and there's intrinsic teleoi. Um, Aristotle would say that the shovel has an uh, extrinsic teleoi because the shovel isn't really like an object in the same way that like we humans are. Um, so like we organics. Because we of have, your myriological nihilism? Well, Aristotle was was definitely not a myriological nihilist. Um, so he he would think that like, you know, humans exist um the myriological the the, the the person who accepts myriological nihilism says that humans don't exist humans per se anyway um but aristotle would argue that there's a difference between um intrinsic and extrinsic teleoi things that we create like shovels would have intrinsic uh, sorry extrinsic teleoi but they would have no intrinsic teleoi but something like an acorn has intrinsic teleoi. Why? Because the acorn is going to grow into an oak tree, even if no human intends for it to do so. Like if an acorn just falls and gets buried, it's going to grow, whether or not humans intended it so. But that shovel is never going to get created and then actually shovel anything unless there's a human, you know, willing it so. So that's the difference between extrinsic teleoi and intrinsic teleoi. But couldn't we just say that uh, it, it see that, that a human that humanity has, if it was created by the Christian God, both extrinsic and intrinsic teleoi. So it's got intrinsic teleoi in that we are um, in we you know are in we 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 grow right. We we have a we have a seeming design that we follow as we develop. Humanity universally follows a particular development plan or whatever. Uh, but more importantly, to the argument that I've been making or that I'm making here, we have extrinsic teleoi in the sense that uh, we have a purpose extrinsically Im imbued with which we're extrinsically imbued by our creator. The fact that it's extrinsically um, telos, telos doesn't seem to me to mean that it's not 
th th that it doesn't get you to an odd. I mean, it sounds to me like what you're saying is that maybe there are different kinds of telewi, some of which get to ought, but others which don't. But I don't see why extrinsic telewi wouldn't get you to ought, given that that kind of telos seems to impl imply obligation. So Aristotle definitely did think that it got you to an ought. I, okay. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. And Thomas Aquinas, like um, I recommend anybody who wants to read about teleology, go read Aquinas because Aquinas is just Aristotle, but you know, 1500 years too late. Um, <laughs> um, but there's a lot more from Aquinas than there is from Aristotle. So it's, it's just more to read. All right. Thanks guys. Let's move on with uh, this question for Kevin. How do you respond to the old challenge that empiricism is self-defeating? Can empiricism be justified empirically without begging the question? And I think this got discussed a little bit. Exactly. In a single word, no. And then in a single sentence, um, I don't have justified belief in empiricism. I have belief in empiricism, unjustified belief. Okay. I don't this have could be a Oh yeah. I should give you the opportunity, Chris. Yeah, you should. Um, <laughs> here you go. Question for Kevin is intuition empirical. No. So in, intuition would be rational, right? So rational just meaning not empirical kind of for tonight's debate anyway. Um, and a lot of, philosophers will actually make this argument that like we should believe things that we have intuitions about um, because there are some things that we intuit that we can never really empirically improve such as I exist like how do you actually empirically prove I exist right like where where is the I like I can prove that there's like some kind of body here that this body has a brain but like where am I right like 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 where am I like you know, it's different. Like I am not my body, right? So, so what am I? But we have this intuition that I exist. And we should be justified in thinking that I exist, say some philosophers. This isn't me. You know, I'm playing devil's advocate right here. Um, so intuition is rational, not empirical. Chris? Nothing to add. All right. Uh, Chris, here's one for you. If we accept his authority requirement on epistemic justification, then how are we justified in believing what any putative authority says. So for those who aren't, um, uh, don't have extensive vocabularies like David does, um, putative just means something like purported or claimed or alleged, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and, and hold up, Chris, before you go on, let me, there's a second part to this. If the justification comes from the authority itself, then it is circular. If it comes from somewhere else, then it seems that an authority is not required for epistemic justification. So there you go. There's the whole question. Okay. Yeah, I'm not so sure I'm scared of circularity on this point, um, but but I'm not sure that it is circular anyway. Um, if so, so, can you put part one back up there just so I can read it one more time? Or is it too late no. to put that back up? Too late. <laughs> really? Seriously, I don't know. I, oh, I have to... okay. All right. So, so why... The question was, how do I justify the belief that an authority is required? Here you go. Here Something you go. along those lines? Here you go. Okay. If we accept his authority requirement on epistemic justification, then how are we justified in believing what any putative authority says? Yeah. So the, uh, the authority um, that I'm proposing is a requirement for epistemic justification is the one that um, – is capable of 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 rightly dictating or or of obliging um, one particular standard as being the 
the one we should use to justify beliefs over the other. That's that's what I'm trying to say. And this, I think, goes back to the is-ought thing that I mentioned a moment ago. The reason I think that such an authority can do that on Christian theism is because of telos. We, we are designed with a particular telos, and that telos is to believe uh, what we have a particular kind of justification to believe, and that is the one that, that our creator has designed us to follow. Um, so with that in mind, how are we justified in believing what any putative authority says? And in this case, I think that authority would have to be the God of Christian theism, since that's what I'm, what I'm saying uh, is the one that grounds the authority necessary, to, necessary for belief to be justified. Um, so then the question become, well, what, to what authority did I, do I then appeal for believing what that authority, um, believe or tells me, but, and, and maybe it's circular, but it seems to me that again, telos can explain this. We are designed, we, our telos is to believe what God, the one who imbued us with telos by virtue of creating us with purpose to believe what that God says, to treat it as definitionally true and what he says is not true as definitely de definitionally untrue. Now, that may be circular, but if it is, I don't really care <laughs> because it's still, um, it, it seems to me that if we were, if it's the case that being created with telos can ground the authority necessary for justifying belief, then it seems to me that that same telos can justify believing in the claims made by the very authority who imbues us with that telos, if that makes any sense. That's my yeah. best attempt, David. I tried. Kevin? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think I have anything to add here. All right. Here's one for both of you from David. Sorry. Uh, I know Chris and Kevin both deny substance dualism, but I'm curious if either thinks that immaterial souls would be evidence for theism if they exist. Dave's got like the best questions. Jeez. Um, Kevin, why don't you oh, start? Sorry. Yeah. yeah. I just assumed I was going first, which was so rude of me. Sorry about that. <laughs> it okay. was rude, but so, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, you know, I, I am agnostic, right? So you, you know those agnostics. We expect. We expect. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. They're the worst. The Holy Spirit's not um, present. So that's right. <laughs> um, <laughs> but so to, to answer Dave's question the best way that I can, I want to say. No, because there are like atheists who believe in the soul, right? Like doesn't like humor believe in the soul or something weird like that? So like that makes me want to say it because it sounds more sophisticated. But when I actually think about like, well, like if I found out that there were souls, I would definitely get be like, I would move closer to theism for sure. So like, even though I think. Good that, news, like, Kevin. There are souls. Next debate. Let's do it. <laughs> no. What are you? What are you doing in ten minutes? No. I'm just um, but yeah. So my answer here is that I would feel more sophisticated if I answered differently. But I have to answer. Well, I I, I could lie, but I won't. Um, I think that if like I I would move closer to Christian theism. Well, I guess I'd move closer to theism of some sort if soul like immaterial souls were proven to exist. Sorry for the terrible answer. Yeah, no, I mean, and what's funny is I think I I think I'm inclined in the opposite direction. Um, hmm. All that it seems to me that material and, and really that's the wrong word. Non-physical is the better word for it because energy is non-material too, um, but energy is physical. But anyway, um, 
the all a non-physical soul is to the extent that it is purported to exist is um raw pure consciousness and you know an individuated consciousness um i don't I struggle to understand, at least given just this question alone, I, I'm not familiar with the with other arguments from the existence of such a mind to theism, uh, to, to be able to answer it better than this, but just from the pure, posited existence of non-physical minds um, that are somehow united with our brains, whatever, I, I don't see how you get to theism of any sort. It seems to me, at least on the surface, as though all that would get you from is from uh, naturalism to some kind of supernaturalism, whether of an atheistic variety or a theistic variety. I just want to add that um, this kind of sophisticated um, person that I want to be is the person that Chris just demonstrated himself to be. So I, <laughs> I just wanted to throw that out there. Kevin, uh, is the sophisticated webcam that you're using one of those that tracks you wherever you move in the room? Uh, you tell me. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> that's, pretty, that's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome. Okay, uh, here's a question for Chris. Why should a nominalist like Kevin accept that there is a problem of the one and the many, given that nominalism affirms only that many and denies the one? Now, in one sense, this is what you guys have been talking about for a while, but, but do you have any more to add? Um, well, so I think I have two thoughts. Number one, um, merely denying the existence of the many, or sorry, of the one, um, doesn't mean that you have solved the problem, right? You can't just say, okay, such things don't exist, therefore there's no problem. You have to account for the seemingness that such things exist. And I know that um, a nominalist is going to try to do so, but what I would contend is that... Um, you, the, our universal human experience is that uh, is that living, just living our daily lives, we are constantly um, assuming the existence of both the many and the one. Um, I, I don't. I, I suspect that you couldn't possibly go through life um, living as though all that existed were quarks and electrons, for example. Um, you could say, right? I mean, I could say, I could say, I believe that there's a flying spaghetti monster, but what do my actions evince, right? What, what are, what are my actions evidence of? There's certainly not evidence that I believe in a flying spaghetti monster. So what do my actions actually evince? And I would argue that every human being's, um, actions evince that deep down, they believe in both the one and the many. Um, the, the other thought I have is that my argument wasn't merely, um, from the one and the many was not merely uh, grounded in observation of the co of the physical cosmos. It's also grounded in what seems to be the requ the, the requisite uh, the, the requirements for logic to function. Um, I, I don't know. It, it's it strikes me as unlikely, um, borderline implausible that logical that, that logical reasoning could continue to function in the way that it does if if particulars and universals aren't real um 
So. I, I've always had an issue with this, Chris, because on the one hand, I want to I, I, I want to affirm this because it seems obviously true that if I see a duck and then I see another duck, these are both part of this. Uh, we could say duck. It has duck nests. We could say, but on the other hand, um, I th- you know Plato's pointing to the world of the forms. Aristotle's pointing to the things in and of themselves, and I find myself wondering like you know, not to the extreme, maybe this is what happens. Maybe it leads to the extreme of mereological nihilism if you deny this. But it seems to me that what, it seems to me that one could say what you have there is an instantiation of a, of, of a creature that looks more or less like what, like a duck, because we categorize things as uh, the one, so to speak. We categorize this as a duck, a barn, a hand, a piece of bread, whatever. Right, but, but thoughts. <laughs> well, well, I mean, so take take Everybody. the first. Well, and I'm interested in Kevin's. They'll be probably better formulated than mine. But but that first premise in that syllogism I offered: all men are mortal. Um, what what it seems to me that the uh, nominalist has to say is that what that actually means is all uh, composite all composites of organic matter. Uh, constituted in shapes that we have categorized as human or something like that are mortal. And at the, you, you get to the point where I'm not even sure it has any meaning. Like it yeah. seems so vacuous of any meaning. Um, and, and, and what's more, you're talking about like Two, you're talking about the problem of the many, the one and the many, as it pertains to like two ducks that may or may not instantiate a single duck nature. But, but I gave the example of a developing human being. Um, I would argue that every single one of us knows deep down, believes deep down, acts as if um, who I am today, even though I am in many ways different. I am fundamentally, by means of in terms of identity, the same person that was conceived in my my mother's womb almost forty four years ago, and yet hardly any. In fact, I would argue none of the cells that make up my body now are cells that made up my my uh, zygote when it was first conceived in my mother's womb. Now, at some point, neurons started to develop and lens cells started to develop. And uh, if, if, I'm, if my science is right, those cells might never be replaced over the course of my lifetime. But even then, I don't think that I can be reduced to any one neuron. And if I can, which one? Right or which or which cell in my lenses? Right. So, so I guess what I'm getting at is that the, the, the problem I I didn't came, I came into preparing for this debate totally unable to make sense heads or tails be able to articulate the problem of the one and the many, but I think what I'm discovering is that it is an inc- there's a reason why it has been the most pervasive philosophical problem throughout history, and that's because it really is an incredibly deep and convoluted problem, or so it seems to me. All right, Kevin. Yeah, so I guess just going back to the whole, like, nominalism thing. So, like, there's a bunch of different kinds of nominalism. And, like, you know, Chris and and you, Braxton, too, you may find some more appealing than others. So what I mean by that is there's a kind of nominalism called conceptualism, where pretty much all of the things called universals are actually, instead of these universals being uh, abstracta, we can call them concreta, but we can call them concepts. 
and each of these concepts. So keep in mind that nominalism and materialism are not the same thing. So you can be a nominalist Christian, like for instance, Dr. Kenny Boyce, who teaches at Notre Dame. He's a like a well-known nominalist, but he's also like a committed Christian. Um, so he might, I don't know if he um, specifically takes like a conceptualist nominalism, but conceptualist nominalism plays like really nicely with theism. As far as I can tell, it plays really nicely with, you know, some some notion of non-naturalism. Um, I don't love like the supernatural versus natural definition or like distinction, to be honest. I think it's kind of unhelpful. Um, but like a, a conceptualist nominalism might be super appealing to people who are kind of of the Christian persuasion, but who also think that nominalism is, is kind of true. Um, like that, that might be something. And then on the on the realist side of things too is, is moderate realism. So Aquinas and Aristotle, of course, were moderate realists where they didn't hold to like, you know, Plato's realm. They, they held that these universals were instantiated within the particulars, um, but they are universals nonetheless, hence why they do fall on the realist side. So there's like, you know, various shades, right? It, it's not like you're either a Platonist or you're like, you know, a materialist, right? There's, there's a lot of shades in the middle. Um, yeah, uh, just a word in response to the conceptualism variation of nominalism, um, or, or actually maybe that's not the right way to put it. The, the conceptualist alternative nominalism that says that they are real, abstract, uh, or concrete. No, I guess it would be a form of nominalism. Um, they are concrete, but what they are concrete things, the, the, the kind of thing they are concrete things of are concepts which are grounded in mind. Well, well, that's I think that makes perfect sense on theism because. Any one concept that we have, uh, that any one of us has, would be ultimately grounded in God's concept of it, though the one transcendent creator in whose mind any particular concept is grounded. But but I don't know that that works when we talk about uh, naturalism or, or, or some kind of non-theism, because if it's the case that, say, a human... That, that human is a concrete thing, but what what is concrete is a concept of human. Then, then, then there is no one concept of human. There are um, as many concepts of human, as many concepts of any concrete concept, as there are human minds, let alone minds of some other kind of species, if such species are capable of abstract thought which is a little ironic to say, given that we're talking about concretia. So, um, yeah, I'm just not sure that um, conceptualism works here. Um, and, and, and I stand by what I said. It, reasoning and just daily living seem impossible um, if we, or, or put another way, we just don't live or, or and, we, and we aren't capable, I think, of reasoning as if um, universals don't exist. Or abstract. Did you guys? I can leave it there if you if you think we should move on. I'm, I'm happy to hear that. Do you guys hear that bell? That's the sound of Kevin. Be, that's the sound of Kevin becoming a theist. We're making progress. Um, one last question before a funny question, and that is uh, on Kevin's incomprehensible argument. How does he respond to the point that Chris raised about this quote? all or nothing approach, can't we just limit our definition of God in aspects we do comprehend? Yeah. So I guess, um, I guess two different points here. So first, if we just take comprehensible to just mean not incomprehensible, then what, what we are saying is here, like, no, like the premise that says that God is incomprehensible is false. So that's certainly a move that somebody could make. You could just be like, no, 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 it's false that God is incomprehensible. Maybe I can't comprehend every single aspect of him, but it's false that God is incomprehensible. That is certainly a move that somebody could make. 
However, um, I use that argument um, from Pascal uh, to support that premise. And Pascal argued that um, humans um, have both um, extension and we are not infinite. Therefore, um, even though we can know the existence of the infinite, but we, we just can't understand um, we, we, we can't understand its nature. For things that are both infinite and have no limits, we can neither understand them nor even know that they exist. So, well, and I would, and I would just respond. Argument. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I am by no means a Thomist. Um, that's one of the reasons that I'm not attracted to Catholicism. Um, but uh, but I just I, I just disagree. I, I don't see any reason why I should accept Pascal's argument uh, or, or reasoning as you've characterized it over the countless theologians over 2000 years that have said that we can know uh, certain things about this incomprehensible God by me by way of analogy. Um, but but that's but the other thing is I, I, I argued that there is a distinction between the existence of a thing and the claim that such a thing exists or, or the or the notion that such a thing exists. And while the nature of God, his essence, his very existence might be incomprehensible, I don't see any reason for thinking that the existence of that God is incomprehensible. And therefore, I don't see any validity to the argument. OK, uh, last question. This is a big surprise. This is from David Pullman. Question for Kevin. Would you debate me on empiricism versus rationalism? Yes, on one condition. I reserve the right to halfway through the debate, change the team that I'm on. And then it's just me <laughs> and Dave debating an empty chair. I would hope I, that, I, you know, that Kevin, kind of thing I thought what you were going to say, I thought you were going to say, uh, one one exception, it has to be on Trinity Radio. I thought that's what you were going to say. That's not what you said. <laughs> okay, two two rules, two rules. I can change sides, and it has to be on Trinity Radio. It doesn't have to be on Trinity Radio, but can you I just, do have to change sides. Uh, well, can I just say? Yeah, can I just Chris. say how sad it is that we have to call that first thing out as a as a as a requirement? Like, shouldn't every debate that any debater goes into be one in which, at least in principle, that debater is willing to switch to the other side in the middle of the debate, given sufficient evidence? Sure. Um, yeah. If if I can share just like two slides in my closing statement. I have that exact bullet point on one of my like closing statements. Sure. Look, go for it. Oh, okay. Cool. Um, okay. So we didn't talk about um, doing closing statements, but, uh, I, sorry. Yeah, one anyway. it, yeah, it's going to take two seconds, I think. Um, so here is my closing statement. And so sorry, I actually have to pull up my little, uh, control switch. Here we go. Um, okay. So, um, this slide is not important. I just kind of wanted to reiterate, reiterate that like for me, empiricism does way more of the, like it, it's, it's a way heavier weight than anything else. Um, and then I also kind of tried to weigh, oh, and you know, never mind. Don't even, don't even look at the theism side. Um, but, um, uh, I just wanted to say lastly and quickly, um, so debates by my light ought to be about service. And I did just use an ought without an if deal with it. But um, service is an act of love. And I think that anybody who goes into a debate for any reason other than love has lost the plot. In a properly ordered debate, everybody wins. We all learn new things. We update our credences in beliefs that we've already had. And we may even form new beliefs. And that's awesome. Um, and and I, th I really think that tonight's debate was an act of service. I, I did my best to serve Chris, 
and the audience. And I feel like Chris did his best to serve me and the audience. So I'm just super thrilled to be here. And um, I, oh, oh sorry, I have no, go one ahead. more. <laughs> so I get this slide. We're going in for the I love line. this. Um, I love this. <laughs> And um, I always just like to end my debates by saying a couple of my favorite things about the person that I'm debating with. Um, so this is what I wrote. Chris is a pioneer. His work on annihilationism is nothing short of groundbreaking. But the thing about Chris's work that I want to highlight is not just that it's groundbreaking, but and, and I say this in the best possible way. It's unorthodox. Chris is an orthodox Christian in in like pretty much every single way. But maybe this one area, he's a little bit unorthodox. That takes courage. And in addition to the obvious intelligence required to come up with these arguments in the first place, Chris is a bold and staunch defender of what he thinks is true. And perhaps more importantly than all of those things, Chris is kind. He defends his views with charity. And thanks to all of this, Chris's intelligence, his courage, his kindness, it seems like annihilationism is less unorthodox today than it was perhaps five or 10 years ago before Chris started his ministry. These are but a few of the qualities that I see in Chris that I hope to emulate myself. Thanks everyone. You know, Kevin, my office is getting really dusty in here. I tell you what, (laughs) (laughs) thank you. I very much appreciate those kind words. And Um, and I I reciprocate. I mean, I, I, I am, I really look forward to becoming better friends. Um, this has been an incredible experience and, and, uh, yeah, let, let's, let's continue to get to know each other. Absolutely. Kevin, you talk like a Christian, uh, talking about service. All yeah. The time. Especially <laughs> properly ordered, uh, properly ordered debate. Right. I mean, anyway, go ahead. I, I yeah. You, you, you no talk way. like a Christian and, uh, <laughs> and I'll tell you, we, we really appreciate that. We appreciate, I have always appreciated your comments on Trinity radio and your presence there. I hope you'll continue to show up and make comments and we'll have you on, uh, just you for some things sometimes too. And, um, I, I feel like we're friends, even if we've never met in, uh, you know, meet space or whatever, but this has been fantastic and what a big debate. And it has been a service because this will now sit on the Trinity radio channel for as long as YouTube allows it to sit. And I think a lot of people will watch it and, and benefit from it. Um, yeah. Anything that you, how about we give you both just a second to say anything? Well, I guess you kind of did, but anything in closing thoughts, is there anything left guys, things you want to push people toward that is coming up? I'll mention this, uh, sometime earlier this year, Aaron raw, made a uh, video answering my 10 questions for atheists. And I have made a response video to the first question. It's an hour and a half. Um, And so I'll be releasing that, if not this week, next week. Uh, Anything you guys want to promote or say on the way out? Um, I guess tomorrow I'm having Dr. Seigart on my show and, and he's famous for being, you know, uh, he, he wrote the book, like, like, you know, uh, the, uh, the scientist's journey from atheism to Christianity. Um, and so I'm super excited to be asking him questions because I think as demonstrated tonight, I have this empirical bias. Right. Um, and I, I, you know, I sound like I'm making excuses now. I blame a lot of my empirical bias on the fact that I went to an engineering school and I got an engineering degree. So like science is just kind of like the way that I think. So like, of course I have an empirical bias, right? Um, Dr. Gard has a PhD. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, and make sure you ask him, Kevin. Uh, I have an unreleased interview with him that I meant to be a part of my podcast, Supernatural Stories, so I've never released it. I plan to one day. But ask him about how he preached the sermon that led to his conversion, because that's pretty interesting. Okay, I will. I will. <laughs> I, I will share that I sent the list of questions to him already for his approval. S I'll sneak this one in there, but if just ask him, just it, ask him then... before or just ask him before <laughs> or after. Yeah, it'll be good. Okay, okay, okay. Chris, Chris you um, have anything? Yeah, uh, two things. Firstly, um, gosh, if every debate between a Christian and a non-Christian were like today's, imagine how much more progress both sides would have made, or all sides Preach. would have made. Preach. Um, so I'm just very thankful to Kevin for for his um, charity, his, his personality, and, and I hope that Christians and non-Christians will model future debates more off of something like ours than on, say, debates featuring Dillahunty or Raw. Um, or for that matter, uh, Bruggen Kate, right? Uh, there's a lot of people on both sides that are kind of a-holes. Um, but that having been said, the, the other thing I'll say is... That's um, a Greek word. That, uh, that's a Greek term for everyone. That's right. That's right. Uh, the other thing I'll <laughs> say is just that, is that uh, I, I see uh, Prime's comment up on the screen that Kevin has an appreciable squat rack. And as a has-been and would-be competitive power lifter, I am really looking forward to talking about weightlifting with Kevin now that I know that he's a bit of an aficionado. So, so yeah, I'm not, not to talk not about an it aficionado. I will say that my my one rep bench press max is now 295, which I'm super that's, proud of. Um, that's about mine. That's incredibly respectable. Very good. Okay. Now I'm I'm also six foot two, so like I should be pretty strong. But, but hey, I'm a work in progress. You know, I'll 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 get there. Well, you know, <laughs> we we short we short people. I'm five seven. We actually have the leverage advantage. So I'm not that sure that I agree that being that tall. You should be stronger. But anyway, yeah, let, let's talk shop sometime because I, I love New debate things. topic. New debate topic. <laughs> anyway, uh, well, guys, this has been fantastic. Thank you all for showing up, you, the listener. And uh, we, I, I know that this will get uh, a lot of views in the days to come, and I hope that it brings light to many. Obviously, as a Christian, my hope is that people would accept Christ and believe in the Christian God. Um, what I like about Kevin is he's cool with me saying stuff like that. So anyway, uh, check out Kevin's channel, check out Chris's channel, and definitely check us out next time we release an episode on Trinity Radio.